This is giant. I got you visual. Come in, Mike. I'm standing by for you. Roger. I'll be there in a couple of mics. In the meantime, give him help. Listening to a very special episode of the Men Among Men stories with myself, Hank, and Bindu. Hey, how are you doing, Bindu? I'm doing well. So today we have a fantastic interview with one of our longtime friends, Larry Jenkins, who served in the Rhodesian Bush War as a member of the Rhodesia Regiment and the British South Africa Police. Larry's originally from Canada before going over as a foreign volunteer in Rhodesia. He had quite the adventure getting there in the first place and has continued to live the adventure ever since. It was a great honor to speak with him and get his take on a war that uh, happened many, many decades ago, long before we were born, but we still obviously have a great interest in that conflict of what it was about, what the motivations, especially of men like Larry, who were foreign volunteers in said conflict. Um, This podcast was recorded live in Edmonton with Larry, and it was a great honor to do it with him. Before we begin, we'd like to pay special thanks to our Subscribestar fans, Gareth W., Brigador24, James M., Delwyn S., Kashim, Thad S., for their continued support of our efforts here at the Men Among Men Stories podcast. It was through your active donations that allowed us to carry on with what we are currently doing and helped us out big time with the financial considerations involved with driving to another city, getting a bunch of AV equipment set up, and interviewing Larry live. So, big shout out to you guys. Many thanks. We we honestly can't thank you guys enough. We do ask if you enjoyed the podcast, please do consider subscribing to our Subscribestar at Subscribestar.com slash Men Among Men Stories. Your donations do help us go a long way in terms of booking guests and getting some dank content out to you guys. So, much appreciated. Uh, ben, do you have anything to add before we kick off here? Uh, this was one hell of an interview, guys. Larry is a fascinating individual. He's had quite an incredible life, and it was very much an honor to talk to him and do this interview. Roger that. So without further ado, Mr. Larry Jenkins. Hello, Larry. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for dropping by. Much appreciated. This is a, this is a long time coming because we've, we've talked in the past, obviously. And uh, for those of you that are listening right now that are members of our Buyers Club, you, you all know, you'll pr- all probably know Larry, who is in our Buyers Club. Uh, special shout out to you guys for supporting the podcast especially on Subscribestar, but we have our very own Larry Jenkins, a veteran of the Rhodesian Bush War, a member of the British South Africa Police, a veteran of the British South Africa Police, that is, and uh, he is with us live today, which is very, very special for us. Uh, we, we had a bit of a drive this morning to do this, and we're, we're very excited to talk to you to uh, learn a little bit more about, I guess, your upbringing, how you as a Canadian ended up fighting in Rhodesia and uh, and coming back and what you've been up to since then. Um, you have a very, very interesting life story that uh, we'd love to share with our listeners. So let's start off at, at the very, very beginning with, with baby Larry. 
what, what can you tell us about your, um, your family and your upbringing in Canada uh, as a young kid growing up? Um, I grew up in a small uh, coal mining town on Vancouver Island. Um, there was only, when I was growing up, there was only uh, two mines still left uh, functioning. And that, so that was that was kind of winding winding down, uh, but the uh, the community was uh, very close knit. Uh, a lot of disasters and and horrible stories of mine explosions, and that was something I I grew up with. And uh, my grandfather was recently retired from working in the coal mine, so I got to spend an awful lot of time with him growing up and of course he knew everybody in town so uh, we'd wander around and it would take hours to get to the post office and back again because we had to stop and, and BS with everybody along the way so the a lot of stories uh, my grandfather was a veteran of the First World War and the Second World War uh, my parents uh, met and married during the Second uh, World War um, I was born in 1946, uh, so I was a, a, a child of that war. Um, yeah, just the stories I, I grew up with uh, uh, were re really interesting. Next door neighbor was a waste gunner on a Lancaster, and like his basement was full of 303 uh, machine gun belts. I, I don't know, he had a fascination for three or three machine gun belts, probably uh, because uh, having been a gunner. Um, I had another neighbor, uh, he was British. Um, he uh, was some sort of special forces behind the uh, German lines doing demolition for most of the war. Uh, he taught me how to make pipe bombs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just crazy stuff. Um, I, uh, when I apprenticed, uh, the guys I worked with uh, were all uh, Second World War vets. Uh, uh, one of them was an 18-year-old uh, radio operator on the uh, lead uh, Canadian minesweeper that swept uh, the mines uh, on Omaha Beach for the Americans on D-Day. Uh, 18 years old. So there's these guys uh, everywhere when you were growing up. Just yeah, nothing, nothing but you know, stories like that. Uh, we had a medal in the family um, that had somehow disappeared, but uh, there were stories about it that uh, belonged to my grand great grandfather's brother, a Crimean War medal, and they apparently. Uh, uh, Grandpa Keenan had tried to sell it during the Depression and couldn't get anything for it. And even though uh, the guy was in the charge of the light brigade, it was just like, what? That's right, he's wounded. <laughs> uh, yeah, my grand grandmother's two brothers mm -hmm. fought with the Canadians in the International Brigade during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, one of them was killed in Spain. Uh, uh, the other one that uh, survived came back. I, I knew him quite well, my Uncle Archie. 
uh, I used to visit him in the in the old folks' home every Wednesday. I'd deliver the local paper uh, uh, to the home and stop and visit my uncle Archie. Um, yeah, he'd. Uh, they had to uh, to get to to get to Spain. Uh, the Canadian passports at that time uh, were stamped with "not valid for Spain." Uh, they traveled to France. They walked into Spain over the Pyrenees. Just unbelievable uh, story. Just, just seems like the generation before me had so much adventure. And uh, I didn't know what lay in store for me uh, because there was not a whole lot going on uh, other than the Vietnam War, but that was seen to be an American thing. That's right. uh, everything else, you know, was pretty quiet. Yeah, it uh, draws uh, a lot of parallels to Chris Cox's story where he was growing up in the, in the private school where he was um, studying a lot of the school teachers were all Malaya vets, right? Just because of that, you know, just because of that generation. And yeah. there were stories from that. There were stories from guys that were in, you know, the Second War um, yeah. in Burma. Uh, definitely, you know, among the Rhodesians for sure. Um, Air Force, Battle of Britain, right? So for yourself, it was no different. Just yeah. given, again, you were a post-war baby, right? 1946. Yeah. Yeah. Literally, yeah. as you mentioned, you're, and your, your mother was in the military as well. Yeah, she was a radio operator, uh, Intercept. Uh, uh, I've got her service record. She'd I found out in her service record that she'd lied about her age to get in. So yep. she'd signed up uh, uh, younger than she was supposed to be. Uh, yeah, she was a special operator. She, uh, she could do more. She could key. Um, she would play around with our radio, uh, uh, you know, the old old console tube radio uh, that had a whole bunch of bands on it that most people didn't even know what they were for. Well, uh, it was all shortwave, and for the heck of it, she would tune into something, and she'd be listening to Morse code. For <laughs> amazing, uh, yeah, I, I think the station that she worked at in Victoria. Was credited with intercepts that were uh, critical in, in winning the Battle of Midway. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, there, there was a bunch of stuff that would come up in the yeah. in the news, and you'd see something on TV, and they this special was talking about uh, how uh, the Allies had cracked the Japanese code and this sort of thing, and she. She would like. She was so surprised. She said, "I was sworn to secrecy on this. I've known this all my life, and I've never been able to talk about it. And now I'm watching it on TV." <laughs> <laughs> and that, yeah, they yeah. don't. They knew the new Japanese code, and she mm -hmm. remembered the night that the Japanese changed code. That the the different uh, yep. uh, radio operators were listening in, and then one of them would say. My guys changed. And then a few minutes later, one of the other offers say, "My guys changed," and that, so they uh, remember the night the Japanese changed their code, wow. and they were ready for it. So, pretty amazing. So uh, yeah, so yeah, all that adventure. Mm -hmm. uh, 
dating back to Crimea, 1850s, uh, in yes. the family. Yeah. To the, as you mentioned, the Great War to the uh, Second War, Spanish Civil yeah. War. Yeah. First Civil War. Yeah. My grand, my uh, grandpa Rollison, mm-hmm. uh, which was the coal miner that. Uh, like I said, when I was young, he'd retired, and I got to spend a lot of time with him. Right. Uh, he served in the First World War uh, as a medic in Europe. Uh, Second World War, he uh, uh, was too old to go overseas, but what he was doing, I, he was involved in uh, POW, German POW camps in, uh, right. in, in Canada. So he, he had some good stories about you know uh, German POWs. Uh, my other grandfather on my dad's side um, was from no, uh, from uh, Newfoundland, and he was a, uh, a, a gunner with Ninth Siege Battery. Uh, apparently, uh, Canadian artillery in the First World War. A lot of them were maritimers. Mm. Not sure why, but. Uh, like a large percentage of them were from the Maritimes. And I, I've got his service record uh, when he went to England, what ship he w- went on, where, where they were stationed in England, uh, when they transferred to France. And he transferred to France about a week and a half before uh, uh, the Battle of Vimy Ridge. So, mm. uh, Ninth Siege Battery that he was with was involved in the in Vimy. So, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm very interested in family history. Do a lot of genealogy and that, and it's uh, uh, you know I've pulled the service records for uh, my mother, my father, uh, all my grandfathers and their and their brothers that served in the First World War, and I've, it's all all available there. And I also discovered my parents never got their medals from the Second World War. They uh, they were. I think it was about 52 that they started sending out the medals mm-hmm. and they would send it to the last address they had on record. And both of, both of their award cards said uh, medals undeliverable. So I got a hold of Veterans Affairs and they actually sent me their medals. Awesome. And that free of charge. So I've got both of their medals from the second one. Awesome. Uh, and you went on yeah, your own adventures. Adventure. <laughs> you went, and you went on your own adventures. Um, uh, it started off at, from, we've talked before again, we, we talked quite a bit before this, but I know you, uh, you it started with an internship for you, and an opportunity, or starting an opportunity to work on a boat. Uh, yeah, I, I apprenticed in the printing trade at a newspaper uh, in, on Vancouver Island. Uh, back in the day when we printed newspapers using lead type and that. Uh, the company I worked for was uh, very forward-thinking. They bought into new technology that was just uh, being available to community newspapers, and that was uh, web offset printing. And that. So the company I worked for, three years into my apprenticeship, uh, we bought a uh, Goss Community uh, web offset press and, and started printing using the new... Uh, Photo technology, mm. uh, and for for those not tracking, like this was a this is an art, is a very labor intensive art because if you think about, I guess, uh, modern printing techniques where you just have 
Well, I guess you have a, you just have word processors on computers now. This was you were you were putting in typesets uh, manually. Yeah, it, it, it lead type. Lead, uh, lead type. You you were basically a cabinet maker because you had to take this lead type mm -hmm. and and make sure everything lined up and mm -hmm. fit yep. because you had to carry this page of type That's right, over yep. and put it on a press and hope it didn't fall apart on the floor on the way there and that so mm -hmm. that, you know there was saws and cutters and a lot of measuring and fitting yep. Yep. and that. Yeah, when I when I finished high school, I got a, a chance to apprentice at the local newspaper. On mm -hmm. uh, uh, I grew up in Cumberland. Uh, Courtney was where the newspaper was, which was only on the, six miles away. It's on yeah. Vancouver Island near Comox, yeah. British Columbia, Canada. British Columbia, yeah. And that, uh, so I apprenticed uh, at a time that we were printing newspapers using uh, lead type, mm -hmm. and that. But there was a new uh, a newer process uh, becoming popular, which was uh, web offset printing. Mm. Instead of uh, printing from from lead type, they were printing from aluminum plates that had didn't have raised type on it. And uh, uh, so uh, the Free Press bought this new equipment. Uh, I I trained on lead type. I was learning the, the new technology. I think there were only two newspapers on the west coast of, of North America that had this process, and that was uh, where I worked at in Courtney, and a uh, newspaper in Alaska. Uh, mm. A guy, a managing director from a uh, newspaper group in New Zealand was looking at that technology as well, and he was touring North America uh, just getting a feel for how this technology was working in small community newspapers. So I got to meet him uh, as uh, when he was on the tour in that. Uh, I remembered his name and uh, thought no more of it and carried on, you know, with my apprenticeship. Um, the editor of the newspaper, this was a, uh, quite a few months later, He's, he said uh, that the Rotary Club was looking for someone to go on a, to be involved in a youth exchange program with New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you were still like, tw like 18, 19 at this point? Uh, 18 years old. I was like... Just out of high school? No, I was in my apprenticeship. I'd finished, okay. I was out of high school. Okay, gotcha. Right. So I was in my in an apprenticeship there and anyway Bill, Bill Lamb the editor said you should apply for this youth exchange and I said well I can't I'm locked into a five year apprenticeship I can't go anywhere and he said well just go apply you can decide what you want to do if, you, if the opportunity comes up to go and that yep. so I applied uh, they selected me uh, the Rotary Club that the plan was I would go to New Zealand for uh, for a year, and I would live with a different Rotary family, uh, uh, one uh, one per month, in that. So I would live with different uh, a different family every month in New Zealand, and with a uh, a sister Rotary club 
in New Zealand. Uh, they said, yep, yeah, we, we've selected you to go. And that, then it was, okay, what do I do about my apprenticeship? Well, uh, the union said that they would release me from my apprenticeship and they would credit me my time in New Zealand because the plan was for me to work in a newspaper in New Zealand. It's a pretty good deal. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, credit my time, come back, carry on with my apprenticeship. Right. Uh, but the deal was uh, I had to make my own way. And you were 18 and probably with didn't no have money. a whole lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was already a guy from New Zealand as part of the Rotary Youth Exchange in Courtney. And I said, how the heck did you get here? And he said, you can work on a freighter. He gave me the name of a steamship company that he'd worked with. I got a hold of them in Vancouver. They said, yep, uh, we do take people on board to uh, work their passage. So you don't get paid, but they feed you. So <laughs> uh, got that all set up, found out the schedule, when their next freighter that was going to New Zealand was, was going to be in Vancouver, and uh, got that all set up. So uh, a couple of months later, at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm dragging a trunk, a trunk up the gangplank of a German freighter in Vancouver Harbor. Yeah, you're and off to sea. And I'm off, off to sea. And thus the adventure begins. Yes. <laughs> were you were you ever expecting that it start on a on a boat on no. a on a West German freighter uh, at you know shortly after high school? Um, yeah, yeah. And um, I had I had taken some German in school. Right. But of course, I was too embarrassed or too nervous to try to. Attempt any. attempt to speak German. Right. So it it was a, a few days on board before I actually <laughs> tried it, and they laughed because I was speaking university German. <laughs> <laughs> and these were West German sailors. <laughs> yes. Right. And uh, right they, were, they were good. I had a great time. Uh, the ship was fairly new. It had been built in '61. It was air conditioned. We had separate cabins. Yeah, it wasn't an old clunker from the Second World War. It was a very, quite a modern ship. It was quite nice. It's only 400 feet long. Uh, mm -hmm. he, I think the total crew was about 22, uh, including seamen and officers and that. And also it had cabins for passengers. And uh, it, apparently it was quite popular back then instead of going on a cruise, you would actually sign, uh, pay to be a passenger on a tramp right. steamer to go all over the place. Wow. And the, yeah, this company was the uh, Columbus Line. So and you guys were hauling cargo or supplies? Yeah, yeah we had five, five holds for right. cargo, and then we'd have deck cargo, which, you know, uh, apparently... We, Lumber was huge, right? Part of the cargo, and that was all stored on deck. Just give that. But yeah, they yeah. The, I'm just looking at the map here. Yeah, the uh, Columbus Line brochure passenger service, and uh, and uh, and sorry, what was the name of the ship? This is the. Uh... This, this is the routes that uh, 
those freighters took that okay. you could book on a, yeah. as a passenger. So, since it's so a podcast, I, I ended up um, on the on the Cap Colorado. Great. The Cap Colorado. And it, uh, Vancouver, Tacoma, yeah, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Tahiti, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Auckland, New Zealand. That was. Quite a few, it's a lot of legs in that journey. So yeah. you were you were all over um, just to end up in New Zealand. Not, yeah. Now you know today. It was the only way I could get there that I could afford. So I had to, <laughs> I had to clean toilets and wait tables and wow and uh, work on deck and. Larry, um, was this ship based in a particular West German city like? Kiel or no? It was registered in Kiel. Okay. okay. That, but it only did the uh, the Pacific uh, route. And, uh, okay. And uh, okay, so it was just like kind of like a, it was just flying the West German flag basically and doing but the work all, of the... but all the crew were German. Right. Okay. okay. Gotcha. Uh, and that and the guy that did the laundry. Was Chinese. Very common. From Germany. Oh, really? Now that's not so common. He spoke English. I, I'm from Cumberland. We had the mm. second largest Chinatown in all of North America when I was growing up. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I know what a Chinese accent sounds like. Our wash. I don't know what you would. I guess the I guess the call actual. Him. He did the law. He was. It's a it's a laundryman. Laundry it's ship. an actual. I think it's like Bozen or Coxon. It's it's laundryman. Yeah. 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 Uh, he spoke English with a German accent, and that was the strangest. <laughs> Bright-eyed eighteen-year-old well, well, from Canada. Welcome, right. welcome yeah. to the world. Yeah, welcome to the world. No kidding. Yeah. No uh, kidding. Yeah, a lot of the guys, uh, they were like 20s, 30s years old. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of, a few of them had actually been mercenaries in the Congo. And, uh, so, Adventurers <laughs> among adventurers. The par, the par right? uh, yeah. Were any of them uh, World War II veterans? Uh, no. None, they're, they're, of, them, none yeah, of them were old, old enough to have been right because I I know a lot of guys who were in the Congo uh, were world German World War II veterans yes yeah yeah these these would have this would have been the sort of like the next generation looking for adventure yeah. oh yeah makes, the Congo. makes sense yeah. so the, the, what years is that you first step off uh, well, you're walking up that game 66 66 yeah so were you were you tracking at this point that there was a a little country in landlocked in Africa called nope. Rhodesia? Nope. No, no idea. No. Nope. You didn't know that the year before they had declared you that you had no clue at this point. Nope. And nope. eventually you do end up there. Uh, we we're, we're getting to it, but you it starts off on this boat, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you're 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 all over the place. You 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 just you mentioned all the points of your leg, and. Um, South Africa comes up. Uh, yeah, uh, 
went to New Zealand. Uh, the town that we did the exchange with was Waiuku, which was just south of Auckland. Right. They couldn't find me a newspaper to work in. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, so wait. So you... I board. I boarded with a family in Waiuku Rotary Club. Okay. Okay. But they couldn't find a newspaper for me to work. So you made it I, all this I, way. I mentioned that yeah. Frank Snedden, yeah, who had visited looking for uh, new technology, yeah, and I knew where he lived, and they ended up doing a swap with the Potaruru Rotary Club so that I could go there and do my Rotary Youth Exchange in mm. a different town. But uh, the first place I went was Waiuko, and the only work I could find was picking up hay bales. Jeez. <laughs> so much for that Fortunately, I'd spent some time working in a sawmill in, in BC, pulling right. on a green chain, so I had some muscles. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the family I boarded with in Waiuku, he was the headmaster of the uh, high school in Waiuku, but he had spent some time in Sarawak. Borneo, right, fighting in the Malay, in the Malayan emergency. So he'd had experience fighting communist terrorists in a Khoi scenario when his family lived in in Borneo in Sarawak, uh-huh. and uh, yeah. So I found out I got some history there of of, of, of coin of coin counter. What Counterinsurgency. Counterinsurgency. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, so I ended up tra- uh, transferring to Pataru, and I did my year there in uh, a month with a different family. And uh, while I was working at the newspaper there, uh, they just bought a brand new press, and I ended up retraining all of the, the staff in the newspaper on how to run uh, the yeah. new press, the same right. press that that I trained on in Courtney, which was the new technology. Um, every family I boarded with, uh, the husband was a Second World War vet, and being New Zealand, most of their stuff had been in North Africa, all right. of their experience. Right. And uh, so, uh, yeah. Uh, there was three newspapers involved in the in changing to the new technology. Uh, they were part of a uh, uh, East Waikato newspaper group. So there was a newspaper in Pataru, a newspaper in Mournsville, and a newspaper in Ta- uh, Lake, uh, Lake Taupo. And uh, so I, I ended up staying in all three towns. Uh, there was a, a guy working in the newspaper in Taupo who was a South African. And he said, when you're finished here, maybe you should go to South Africa. Mm-hmm. So. And what year is this? Uh, is this? 67. 67, okay. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I, I'd heard about, now heard about South Africa. Uh, I finished my year, year there. Uh, ended up Signing back up on the same freighter, the Cap Colorado, went, came back to Canada, and uh, uh, did 
worked at a couple of newspapers. Oh, uh, while I was there, uh, the Union in Canada had said that they would credit me with my time in New Zealand towards my apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. uh, New, New Zealand said, well, we'll go on better. We'll credit you your apprenticeship time in Canada, and you've just finished your 9,000-hour apprenticeship in New Zealand. So I got my journeyman papers while I was in New Zealand. Nice. And, uh, so I came back to Canada as, as a journeyman, installed a new press in Prince George. was my first job when I got back. Uh, moved down to uh, back to the Vancouver area. Uh, the newspaper in New Westminster was changing to the new technology. So I went in there, worked hot metal in that newspaper until they changed over to, to like the, there was like four of us that actually knew how to typeset on uh, the phototypesetting. So uh, this was pretty cutting edge at the time and it was yeah. so you you guys were it was like the you know the macbooks of its time or whatever it was well, like the new well that's, exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah as far as you know <laughs> a old non-existent trade goes uh, it was it was cutting edge and uh, you you were kind of high demand you you so you, you did go back to canada and then but south africa was always it was something that was mentioned to you well, the it, idea it, it somebody planted the right. seed what do you what do you think of Africa at the time? Obviously, you met a lot of we, veterans we and adventurers, but no, it's a land of elephants and lions, mm -hmm. as far as you were. Yeah, you were aware. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. had no history on it. Mm -hmm. uh, I was working at the uh, Columbian newspaper in in New Westminster, and an ad in the paper look looking for. Uh, tradesman uh, for New Z uh, for Rhodesia. Okay. Uh, all expenses paid, three-year contract, whatever. I thought Africa. Okay, I'm going to apply. And that wait it's three all three years. Paid. Yeah, a three-year contract. That's yeah. a good deal. Yeah. That's a good deal. And uh, uh, so I applied, and then I waited and waited and waited, and I heard nothing. But in the meantime, I'd started reading. I, uh, mm. Reading about South Africa, reading yeah, news stories on Mozambique and, and a war going on there. Right. Uh, a little bit about Rhodesia. Uh, but I, like I said, I, I didn't get a response to my, to my application. Right. So I thought... Well, there's a South African embassy in Vancouver. I can go down there, uh, see if they they're offering the same deal Rhodesia was, mm -hmm. and they said, "Yeah, we are," and uh, and uh, I immediately, within a couple of weeks after putting in my uh, credentials, and that I got an offer uh, from a, a newspaper group in South Africa, same deal. They pay all my expenses. Go there, but there was no mention of a contract. I didn't have to sign a contract to go mm. to South Africa, and uh, so I got that all set up. Uh, moving expenses, 
for, you know, for personal effects to be shipped and all this sort of a stuff. A little easier than having to go on a freighter and clean <laughs> I toilets. Didn't, I for, didn't have to find a, by a the way, freighter and clean toilets. I don't know. Am I allowed to mention that uh, what you stole from the freighter? Because there is something you, you, you did end up taking away as a last uh, little F you to the, to the crew. Why don't, well, I, I hope they had, I'm pretty sure they had a I, I really hope they did backup. Too. Yes. And, and so that, what, no, what did you I, steal? I, I, uh, the statute of limitations is gone, right? No, one's, no one from West Germany is going to come after you, help. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a string of keys uh, that I've never thrown away over the years because in most cases I don't know what they fit and mm. I didn't, don't ever want to not have the key if That's I right. finally find, find where the lock is yeah. that it belongs to. And, uh, and on it I have a great big brass key to the Unter Officers Washroom. <laughs> the Under Officers Washroom. You yeah. stole their washroom key. <laughs> talk about yeah. talk about like I don't know office you, politics. You don't want to ever clean a saltwater toilet. No. <laughs> so you took that as a little memento, and maybe there's still some old crusty West German captain. Well, that ship is. Yeah, oh, that's it, right. That, yeah. That, that, yeah, it, it's, it's no longer crap. Right. Yeah, it yeah. had some history. Not long, about a year after I left it, the right. uh, engine room caught fire. Uh, I think it's bad luck. Some of the guys you... were killed. That's crazy. That, yeah. that I probably knew, and that it ended up in Japan being refitted and uh, bought by a, a different steamship company and with a different name, and it. Ended up on uh, Breakers Beach in uh, Bangladesh, or no, it was India, yeah, Pakistan. Yeah. Pakistan. Pakistan, yeah, yeah, great, uh, yeah, huge beach where they just they they pull up ships that are about to be scrapped. So I think yeah, you can talk about you you stole the key. Now. Yeah, the ship's no longer around. No one's no one needs the key anymore. <laughs> All right, we just wanted to make sure you didn't get in trouble for that yeah. one. <laughs> You know, enough of our guests in trouble yeah. already. <laughs> right on. So, uh, South Africa, all expenses paid. Yep. No cleaning toilets this time. I'm all ready to go, and then I get a letter from Rhodesia saying my uh, application has been approved. All right. So, uh, And the reason, apparently, uh, Rhodesian mail was going through the UK, and the UK government was going out of the way to, to make sure mail got delayed. So. Right. So you you had learned a little bit about kind of how the war was escalating at this stage? Just a tiny well, it was bit no war. Uh, Rhodesia was in negotiation uh, with Britain and had been for, since they what? declared UDI. Oh, what year was this? This is uh, 60, 68, 69? Uh... 6970. Okay. So they're they're dealing with like a very like a criminal action as far as they were No, not, not, uh, not really. Uh, there They declared UDI in 65. Right. The Rhodesian government had been negotiating with Britain for a number of years, trying to come to a constitutional settlement mm -hmm. that Britain would recognize and grant Rhodesia 
independence, even though Rhodesia had declared independence unilaterally in 65. They were come, trying to come to a constitutional agreement with Britain where Britain would recognize the, the, the independent government of Rhodesia. And there had been ongoing talks and proposals and whatever. During that time, uh, there was a lot of civil unrest going on in, in Rhodesia, mm -hmm. but it was basically different nationalist groups fighting each other. Right. Okay, you had to be carrying the right party card or you would, would end up being assaulted or attacked and there'd be fire bombings and that. But it, that basically, that was civil unrest. It wasn't really unrest against the government. Right. It, it was uh, nationalist groups applying for power within... So you wouldn't even characterize it as a war. No. And definitely not from your, you know, you, you weren't even really seeing a conflict from your perspective. You're seeing some sort of a, I guess you'd call it political strife from... Well, they were trying to negotiate a settlement. Right. Okay. And they, they kept getting closer and closer to the settlement. There was, uh, there was no, uh, no war going on. Uh, there might riots, strikes, right. internal police matters right. taking place, but uh, nothing like the scale of... Uh, but when you showed up. Of being armed yeah. by uh, communist countries and actually coming in and, and trying to uh, destroy infrastructure and 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 uh, you know stage some sort of a takeover it was nothing like that going on it was just basically Britain and Rhodesia government were having an argument we're having an argument about how Rhodesia was going to become uh, independent and recognized and, uh, so I'd been reading about that so uh, the scary stuff I was reading was coming out of Mozambique mm. and uh, what was going on there with the uh, they were having the a, they were having a full on Cold, yeah. uh, counterinsurgency scenario going on in, Moz in Mozambique so you, you figured <coughs> that you so I knew not to go to Mozambique right okay. you're like Rhodesia's gonna be safer easier all expenses paid by the way um, well, I'd sort of forgotten about Rhodesia right. and that, and I was more interested in what was what South, South Africa, Africa looked like because right. that's where I now had the offer from. And uh, everything I read was, that was scary was coming out of Mozambique, so I know, right. okay, I'm not going to Mozambique. That's not a good idea. South Africa looks stable and fine mm -hmm. and all the rest. And that, so uh, that. I got a, an air ticket and I had to pick my route and I decided uh, I could either go via Europe or I could go via South America and I thought, well, I probably won't get a chance to go to South America again, so, <laughs> excuse me. You've been on like every continent at this point almost. You know, well, yeah. I had an uncle in Montreal I needed yeah. to visit. I had, uh, my grandparents were in Toronto Yeah, and that, so it's flew to Toronto, took the train to uh, visit my grandparents. Right. 
uh, took the train to Montreal, visited my uncle who was uh, uh, a captain in, in uh, Canadian artillery stationed in, in uh, St. Hubert at the time, visited him. Uh, I think it was the worst snowstorm in Montreal's history. Uh, all the bridges were closed except for one and I managed to get a taxi driver that would take me to the airport to fly me to get on my flight to South Africa. I flew from there uh, to New York, New York, uh, to Rio de Janeiro. Mm -hmm. So it's my, yeah. minus 30 in Montreal. I get on a plane, I'm wearing all my minus 30 clothes. <laughs> and uh, 14 hours later, I get off a plane in Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> and it's like jungle. 42 degrees. <laughs> it's like, I was, so, I like, was, yeah, uh, like a hundred degrees. I was kind of warm. Right yeah. Well, I so, think every, every Canadian has experienced that going from like. Whenever we fly overseas, our American listeners probably have no idea what we're talking about. When we, you know, we travel, we have all of our winter gear on, and then you get off the plane, the humidity hits you in the face. Oh yeah, hot. And, and it takes for you know you can't. It takes forever to get through yeah. customs and, and, yeah, and yeah. whatever and before you can actually sweating. get to the street and take your clothes off. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. So I had a I had a great week and a half in Rio de Janeiro. Just, nice. Just and that's that's it. that was uh, that I guess that was critical. Acclimatization. I mean, you were in New Zealand, which is a fairly temperate climate, and then Canada, um, and you're going to Africa, so very, very different yeah, climate. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, Rio yeah, was Rio sort of got me ready for what humidity was. Right so, on. Uh, yeah. And uh, and then uh, yeah, from there I flew to uh, direct to Johannesburg. Uh, I remember the. I remember seeing the color of the soil for the first time in Africa. It's mm -hmm. red. That's right. The red soil, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was the big one. And that, and then flying in over Johannesburg, seeing the the giant um, tailings from the gold mines. They're just oh, mountains yeah. of. Uh, If it was coal, it would be called slag heaps, but it wasn't coal. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was gold. Yeah. Right. Apparently, they're remining that now because they've got technology that. Oh, really? It's even better that. Yeah. So Rio de Janeiro uh, was my first taste of humidity and heat. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. it was sort of preparing me, uh, and I it was. I, I think I flew. I think it was Varig Airlines, which was uh, uh, Brazilian Airlines, which just was, was awesome. Uh, the service on it, and that was a great airline. Um, what was it so like? So from from there, I flew to Johannesburg, yeah. and but uh, Johannesburg is quite a ways inland on in Africa. So I got to see what the what Africa looked like from the air for nice. for a few hours. And this is um, and this is the era when you could like smoke on airplanes and stuff. Right? Oh, of course. Yeah. So you could smoke, <laughs> you drink. I, I nice. can't even remember if they had a smoking section. I think the whole plane. Was <laughs> 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 like good old days? Yes. So you could smoke. You, you were. Uh, was there like? Did they have like in-flight 
alcohol and stuff? Like, was there booze on board? Yeah. What was it? Was it like finding this like just '60s going to Africa? I imagine it must have been a. Oh, it was great. It. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't even remember. We probably ate on bone china back then. Wow. <laughs> Be serious. That is the that well, golden age of flying. Well, right? I think that that was one of the signatures of Ward Air, Canadian Airlines. Right. In that they bone actually china. served all of their food on bone china. Amazing. <laughs> you get a plastic tray now, fro- half frozen. You know that's that's incredible. Uh, far cry from uh, scrubbing toilets for West German freighter. And it was all paid. And it's all paid for. And, and by somebody some, else. Somewhere on a freighter was my personal effects making its way to Johannesburg. Nice. Including my Peugeot bicycle from Vancouver. Which nice. was going to be my mo- mode of transport once right. I got there. So, right uh, yeah. Right so, yeah, flying in Janiver, Janisburg, or flying over, you know, uh, Southwest Africa and into into you know into South Africa and, and Johannesburg, which is uh, basically right in the middle of South Africa, and that I got to see the African soil from the air for the first time. The bright. This bright, bright red soil. Just I'd never seen. Uh, you know, it's not the same color as the prairies. That's for sure. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so arriving Johannesburg. Uh, oh, the thing was the job offer I got in South Africa was lead type. Uh, they so you were, were still printing newspapers. <laughs> you were backtracking, technology-wise. Backtracking. But uh, those kind of skills were in, were, were in demand. Okay, this is why they were searching the world for people that could set type with lead mm-hmm. in that. It was, uh, you know, it was sort of the pinnacle of the trade to be able to actually operate a line type machine. Uh and that that was the the job offer I got. It wasn't had nothing to do with the new technology, but I get there and of course, they're dabbling in new technology. So, they they were importing a machine that they were going to try out, and it was like, oh, that's the machine I've been running for the last two years. You've never seen one before. I've got two years experience on it now. So, so bring it on. Um, company apartment. Um, I would take the bus. Morning newspapers mean that you work all night to print the newspaper. So if if you're if you're working in the composing room of a newspaper, uh, you're the only the, the production shift is afternoon shift uh-huh. uh, to get the newspaper out for first thing in the morning. So uh, I would take the bus to work. Like in uh, late morning to start my shift, and then uh, there would be a company uh, minibus that would drive us all home at night. So we didn't have to uh, take public transport or not to get home. And that. so I really didn't need a car, and, and I didn't get have much use for my bicycle. And uh, so, uh, and and being in a company flat, and uh, it, it was great. But working there, we're a, 
and living in the flats were a couple of families that were ex-Northern Rhodesian people. And uh, one of the guys said, uh, you don't want to be here. you got to go to Rhodesia. <laughs> and for, for those not tracking, the Northern Rhodesia is now Zambia. So they, they became Zambia, I think. Northern. When, when Rhodesia, well, when the Federation when the broke Federation up, broke up they became, yeah, so they became, yeah. and then and then Southern, well, Southern Rhodesia became Rhodesia. Rhodesians. And, and, and Nyasaland right. became Malawi. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah, so he, this guy was pretty up to date on what was happening in Rhodesia, and that and that there was the Hume Agreement, uh, and the Pierce Commission, and it looks like Rhodesia was independence was going to be recognized. They had a new constitution, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I said, well, well, that's where I'd applied in the first place, but. Because of the mail holdup, I, ne I never got my answer. Uh, the, the newspaper I worked for was affiliated with the newspaper in Rhodesia, so I just went into HR and said, can I do a transfer to Rhodesia uh, to go to Salisbury? And they, they said, yeah, no problem. Uh, we'll pay your way, but through your contract. And I, I said, well, well, that's fine. And uh, so I was only in South Africa, I've actually, I've got the exact dates, probably about six or seven months when I did the transfer right. uh, to go up to Salisbury. And, uh, so, uh, yeah, moved up to Salisbury, I uh, got to travel by train from Johannesburg uh, up to Bulawayo, Bulawayo to Salisbury. That, but the, the train route took me through Botswana, and that so it was a four, uh, three night, four, four day trip on a uh, uh, lovely old wooden That's right. coach train. Yeah, uh, we, we've talked about this trip before. It was like you know, yeah. Trans Siberian Railway. It was, it was pretty romantic as far as Africa goes. Peacock Garrett. Steam locomotive. Nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah, nice. So. And that. So, yeah. Uh, like I said, it was uh, three days. Yeah. Three nights, four days to get me to Salisbury. Got to Salisbury. The jacaranda trees were all in bloom. The beautiful purple. Sorry, which trees? trees? Jacaranda. Right. And okay. Uh, the avenues all lined. The trees actually came together and as a canopy and right. you, like uh, like cherry blossom type right, thing okay. only but they're really bright purple and that just lining the streets and two days later I got pink eye <laughs> <laughs> such as Africa it's hard to say when you got sense. a pink eye <laughs> yeah so I got pink eye um, and pretty hard to work when you have pink eyes so I missed my first week of work <laughs> <laughs> well that's a that's a great way to uh, start uh, great company great newspaper yeah. uh, the Rhodesia Herald um, all the old guys were uh, ex-vets 
Second of course, War. of course. All desert rats. Uh, oh, that's that's yeah, right. I, Rhodesia yeah. had a lot of uh, guys go over to North Africa. It was all North Africa. Well, that's yeah. where the action was. I mean, yeah. either you sat in Britain training and training and training that's right. and doing nothing, or you went to North Africa and act where there was actually a war going on. So, that's right. Yeah. Uh, I need to mention that when people tell you war stories, they only tell you the funny things. That's right. <laughs> okay. So all the stories I heard growing up from everybody that served anywhere and done anything, even my grandfather, he never, he never talked about bad stuff. He only talked about the funny stuff, the good stuff, uh, the happy stuff. Uh, and same with the guys uh, that I met at the Herald. Uh, they had all these great funny stories about North Africa and mischief they got into, etc. Uh, yeah, so uh, I arrived in Rhodesia. Uh, they were in the process of finalizing this constitutional agreement that they had with Britain, but they needed to sort of do a little bit of a referendum to make sure everybody was on on board. So uh, there's a thing called the Pierce Commission that was going around to, to see if everybody liked the Hume Agreement that was about to be signed. And it turned out that the Pierce Commission didn't think everybody was on board. So it Hume Agreement got cancelled and uh, what looked like was going to be a, a, a done deal was no longer a done deal. And I think at some point after that, things were, were, were stable uh, when I'd made the plans to move to Rhodesia. Uh, and the, in the process of, they had a Hume, the Hume Agreement, which was basically a, a settlement that uh, independent was going to be recognized. Uh, Pierce Commission uh, came from England, basically to do a bit, a bit of a referendum to make sure everybody was on board. Uh, the Pierce Commission finding was not favorable. Uh, they decided that changes of it needed to be made in the agreement uh, to finalize it, and it was back to the negotiating it table again. Uh, in the meantime, the nationalist groups decided that they didn't want to talk anymore and behind the scenes they were now making arrangements to get backing from communist uh, countries to actually start some sort of armed uh, insurrection in Rhodesia with a view to uh, disrupting uh, infrastructure, blowing up power lines. Uh, this was this was a new tactic, and this sort of started up when I had just arrived in Rhodesia, thinking that this was 
they had an agreement, things were going to remain stable, everything was going to be, was going to be fine. Uh, so now I'm sitting there with a three-year contract and things are starting to go a bit sour. Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't go there looking for an armed conflict. I went there looking for a, a nice three-year contract as a line-type operator, uh, mm -hmm. with a view to finding out, uh, you know, looking for another place to go after I was finished with that with that adventure. Uh, so the war the war started up um, with uh, attacks on on uh, farms north of Salisbury. Uh, uh, the younger guys I was working with at the newspaper, they had national service in, in Rhodesia, so everybody at the age, all the males at the age of 18 would have gone and done, like, uh, I think, I think the minimum was six months training, mm. and then you were had to go and do follow-up training every year for four or six weeks, yep. uh, and and that uh, I think that requirement was till the age of twenty-five, and that so from eighteen to twenty-five you did your, your first year you did basic training and then. Uh, every year afterwards, you would go, go and do some sort of training camp or some sort of exercise or whatever. So everybody uh, was was doing something at the time, and everybody had stories to tell. And guys I worked with would disappear for for four or six weeks at a time on on call ups, but. Uh, I was under a five-year exemption, and I was already over 25 in that. So I basically did not come under the umbrella of uh, national service in that when I was working. And this this was is just there. for the Europeans of the states, right? They, they hadn't extended to yes. the blacks in yeah. Rhodesia. Yeah. So it's all the males, 18, 25, have to do regular call-ups and stuff, and you know, basic training, yeah, more or less. Yeah, they would do their basic training, and then they would they would go and do like right. a refresher every year for a, a few weeks. Mm -hmm. And th those duties could just be uh, border patrol, yeah. stuff like that. There was actually no armed conflict that they were in, that was happening at the time. Any uh, all the other. Any of the civil unrest was was treated as a police matter. The army wasn't really involved, other than to guard the borders, which didn't really need to be guarded. So you, you know, uh, our, uh, national service was an inconvenience, but uh, they were there was no conflict going on. Any problem with, with, with terrorism or, 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 or nationalists uh, firebombing members of a, the other nationalist uh, political parties uh, was all dealt with by the police. It was considered a, a, a criminal matter. In fact, during the whole war, uh, 
every terrorist incident was considered a criminal matter and a police dock would be open and they would run ballistics and and that it was 90% of police work is filling out forms well that war was the most documented war probably until we burnt everything <laughs> at the end yeah. <laughs> at independence yeah. Uh, yeah so I I was I had no obligation under the uh, National Service Act when I was there, uh, but it was suggested that I I volunteer uh, for the police reserve, and that would involve going to get some uh, uh, police training, and then I would. Would volunteer myself for one evening a week to work at a police station in, uh, as a uniformed police officer, and uh, so that sounded kind of neat. Some of the guys were were doing that. Uh, so I got the forms for that, and on those forms, it needed. I needed the uh, permission of my employer, and they wouldn't give it. So I couldn't. I couldn't join the. I couldn't volunteer my free time and mm -hmm. work at a police station one night a week uh, as a police reservist unless the, my employer signed, and they wouldn't sign for it. So uh, there was nothing uh, that I could do. So what and was the what was the appeal then of uh, joining the police reserve? Was it you know, did you get any perks and no. like, it's really it just something you're, you're just interested in? Uh, it sounded like a good gig to, again, the war was still, the quote-unquote war was very low intensity yeah. as far as you were concerned and it, it was just something you're interested in doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right on, yeah. So Yeah, because uh, I... I knew some guys that were in the in the police reserve, and they said it was it was fun. Uh, they get shoot guns and track well, No, uh, police force in Rhodesia was not armed. Okay, so okay. Yeah, just you didn't you didn't have a sidearm. You oh really? Had, you had a six inch rubber baton. <laughs> right on. And you had a uniform that got a lot of respect. Ah, there you go. There <laughs> it is. There's the answer. Roger that. Yeah. Right on. <clears throat> um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna look at some notes here. Uh, sure. Something happened. Yeah. So it it was a short period of time from when I arrived in Rhodesia, from when I decided I needed to do my bit. Okay. So I I arrived I arrived in Rhodesia in October of seventy two. In May, that was late '72. So, right. And how, how old are you at this stage? We mentioned you. You know, we started this story. New Zealand. I'm, I'm over 25. Okay. Yeah. You're a little bit older than a lot of these guys that are. Yes. Actually entering the service yeah, for the first yeah, time. Yeah, because quite a bit at older. 18, they are right. going. Right. They're they're reporting to. Right. For duty. Okay. Uh, so I'm over 25. So that gives me gives me an exemption and also. I'm under a five-year exemption at being a uh, 
landed immigrant type scenario. Right? Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, so we had late 72 when I arrived. May 1973, okay, all, all of my buddies at work are now being called up on a longer basis uh, under their national service, the under 25 guys, because of the farm attacks that are, uh, are taking place in, it was the Mount Darwin centenary area north of Salisbury, mm. which is where, uh, for whatever reason, they, they decided the thing to do is to try to drive farmers off the land. Uh, yeah, so in May in 73, two Canadian tourists were killed at Victoria Falls. They were, they were uh, visiting uh, as tourists, and they, um, I'm going to read, read, read from, uh, some notes I got here, so I don't get anything sure. mixed up here. So there, there were four tourists that were fired on for the Zambian side of the, of the Victoria Falls. Uh, uh, Zambezi River Gorge. It was an American couple. The male was wounded in the stomach and the two Canadian girls were killed. Uh, Christine Sinclair was 20 years old from Guelph, Ontario. She died instantly. Marion Driver, 19 years old, from Rockwood, Ontario, probably also died instantly. But she fell into the into the Zambezi River. Now Marion's body has never been, was never recovered, and the position that these four people were were at uh, in the gorge was fired on for uh, two and a half hours by the uh, the Zambians on the other side of the river, uh, and they actually moved their machine guns several times to get try to get a better shot at where they were. Okay. It was like deliberate. This wasn't. There was no accidental or negligent discharge. This was like a deliberate. They were engaging them as they were. The bullshit them. story was they thought they were uh, saboteurs about to swim across the river and blow up the power station on right. the other side. Of course. And this is the second gorge of the Zambezi River, which would be a class six rapids. Which means you die. Okay. 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 Class five rapids is you got rocks in your head. <laughs> okay. Okay, Roger that. Okay. Yeah. At that that point below the falls, there's not even crocodiles. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so they were not swimming. Yeah. Okay. Uh Trudeau did nothing. Yeah. I'm talking about that other Trudeau. <laughs> oh, sorry. The one yeah, we're I, talking the one about. I had to live with. Right. Uh, this is Pierre. The first, yeah, Trudeau. Yeah, Pierre, Pierre, yeah. Pierre Trudeau. Uh, yeah, it was kind of a shame to be a Canadian. That that changed um, that changed your mindset on all this. Mm -hmm. um, you, yeah. you remember? So I, I'm assuming because you worked in the newspaper, you probably got the news uh -huh. right away. One of the girls' parents came and, you know, and right. wrote letters and 
got nothing. I think I think three weeks later, the Canadian government gave Zambia $75 million in aid or something. Like, that was their response. Nothing was ever said. It was just, yeah. For these guys just shooting Canadian non-combatants there on a, you know, African safari. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, the only option I really had was to join the police reserve. My employer blocked it. I uh, wouldn't sign. Okay. So, uh, a co-worker at the Herald, uh, he was a corporal in uh, 8th Battalion, Rhodesia Regiment, and uh, uh, he had some connection with Army Pan Records, and he arranged for me to mistakenly <laughs> get a... Uh, call-up papers in the mail for the next operational tour of the 5th Battalion. So, so they mistakenly, mistakenly, quote-unquote, called you up? Yes. Assuming yeah. that you had already done national service and six months of training and all this, they were just like... And, and even though I was over 25, uh, because I had done national service... Apparently, um, I was being called up with the rest of the over twenty fives. <laughs> okay. So anyway, I I presented my call out papers to uh, HR and it got put in the pile with all the other ones. So <laughs> anyway, uh, so your employer couldn't say no now. When when you get called up, you get called up. It's there's no, I mean not. If you were a actual national serviceman, if you got called up, you were called up. Yes, your papers arrived, and that was that. Your employer can say, "Well, I need this person here." You get a letter that says, uh, "Oh, you have the letter here." So why don't you read uh, it for us? Military employment under Section Forty of the Defense Act, nineteen seventy-two. Uh, you are required for a 30-day period of, medi- of military employment. Uh, in this case, it was uh, 31 July, 75, to 29 August, 75. Okay. Although unlikely, this period may be extended if the situation warrants. Mm. You are to complete a bunch of stuff. And you're to report to Three Brigade Mobilization Center, which is the area outside the Quartermaster Store at KG6 Barracks. And there's a whole bunch of stuff about inoculations and... There's, there's just no arguing with that. It's a government... You don't argue. You get that. that cut, you get that letter in the mail and that's it. That's it. <laughs> you're gone, gone for six weeks. You're gone for six weeks. Okay. Or... Longer. <laughs> or longer. As I yeah. Although, once, although you're, like, once you're in, yeah. <laughs> you're just in. Yeah, the exit date is may not be as described. So, anyway. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I got caught. My first call up was 23rd of October, 73, to 15th of August, 74. Um, and, yeah, that was compliments of uh, Dave Gomes. He arranged that for me. Um, we got four days of battle camp 
So why don't you describe this battle camp for me? Because again, they were under the assumption you had done six months of national service at minimum, plus all plus some call ups and stuff. They assumed you had had quote unquote basic training. You'd learn how to drill and march and parade and salute and yell really loud when an NCO asked you to and and maybe been in the bush already. But instead, you actually had a four-day battle camp. What was this battle camp? Uh, It was, we drew kit, which was camouflage, uh, issued a rifle, uh, basically went over uh, uh, weapons training as part of the course. Zeroed your rifle. Um, I did. I mean, I I had experience growing up uh, with firearms, so I, I did know how to use a bolt action rifle. Uh, but our issue was an FN, but it, it didn't take very long to understand the mechanics of it and how to strip it and and reassemble it blindfolded. Uh, the, we all tried out on the squad machine gun, uh, the MAG, and uh, um, for whatever reason, I was pretty good with the MAG, so that's what I ended up being issued with. Instead of the FN, I got issued uh, MAG. We did uh, anti-ambush drills and practice. Uh, How to how to drive in a convoy? How to how to how to debus uh, during a vehicle ambush? Uh, we did uh, snap uh, shot training with pop up targets in a jungle lane and and stuff like that. Uh, just uh, how to set up an OP. Um, just basic really basic infantry stuff, uh, no marching, no saluting, no, none of the other bullshit. Yeah, you were right into coin, coin warfare. Yeah, it was just the name of the game. And then, uh, a somber moment before we were done for the, on day four was, uh, nice to meet y'all, you do know some of you ain't coming back. And that was that. And you were off to what became your first bush trip, right? Yeah, my first bush trip was to a place called Mukambor, which was in the Zambezi Valley on the border with Mozambique. Right. Maybe it's a long way there. Mukambor River was actually the boundary. It's a long way there. At that time, uh, uh, Mozambique was still a part of Portugal, mm-hmm. and uh, the Portuguese were fi- fighting their own terrorist war against Perlimo, and uh, so we were sort of allies. So, uh, yeah, the station at at, at Mukambora, we we there was no there was no road per se. Uh, in the dry season, you drove across the dry riverbed into into Mozambique to the uh, 
the Portuguese uh, garrison on the other side, or during the wet season, you waded across the river. But yeah, so we we did spend some time working with the Portuguese uh, military uh, and drinking in Rosie's Cantina. <laughs> you traded a few things with them, eh? I got a hat. You got a hat. <laughs> you still have it. Uh, it's upstairs somewhere. Yeah. yeah. I think I, when I met yeah, it's you, a leopard pattern. Yeah, I was like, those things are kind of hard to come by. Where'd you, you know, where'd you get that? And then you're just like, oh, I gave it, got it off a Portuguese soldier. I'm like, what? <laughs> that was that was pretty funny. Um, oh, they would they would give you their rifle for a stable belt. Oh yeah. <laughs> what did you? So how did you get that hat? Because your hat is actually like pretty, you know, uncommon. I, I just what did you trade the for? Rhodesian bush hat for okay. a. Portuguese bush hat. Right, right on. Yeah, it was hat for hat. Hat for hat. If you wanted anything, if you wanted, like I said, if you wanted a some nice, sta nice stable belt, that was going to cost him his G three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Uh, so, yeah, Mukamboro. Okay, we did. Uh, we could cross the border uh, in in the Mozambique. We we. We would, uh, we, they had a better cantina on their side of the, uh, of the river than, than we did, uh, Rosie's Cantina. There were rumors that the, probably for Limo terrorists in Mozambique were drinking in Rosie's Cantina during the day and then out ambushing the Portuguese at night. So. <laughs> mm. uh, the, uh, basically what we, what we were doing is based on local, or information from locals, uh, there may be a, a village that needed to be watched because they possibly could be harboring terrorists or feeding them. And uh, so uh, we did a lot of uh, OPs, observation posts, uh, to watch for unusual track uh, you know, activity at a village. And so we'd OP during the day, then at night we would, would probably go and be moved to ambush a suspect trail, uh, and then we'd be back up at the OP during the day. So it was basically just OPs and, and am ambushes that uh, the Rhodesia Regiment was doing. It, uh, just those fundamentals from that four-day battle camp, basically. OPs ambush, OPs ambush, yep. name the game. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just, just for our civvy friends, for reference, what is an OP? Oh, it's an observation post. Right. So you're, you you set yourself up in a high feature, mm -hmm. and that, and basically you just watch, watch and listen. Watch, yeah, watch right. and listen. Uh, the biggest issue is water, um, shortage of water, and that. Uh, how, how many canteens were you? And, and you had to walk to your yeah. OP. It could right. be. 10, 15 kilometer walk in. So if a feature has been designated that it need, you need to set up an OP there, 
uh, normally be like a two or three vehicle convoy uh, with the sticks that are being deployed to the OP. Uh, you'd be dropped off after uh, last light. Uh, the convoy speed would be, be quite slow, but they would not stop and let mm. you out of the vehicle. You had to debus on the roll so that no one, there'd be no indication that a vehicle had stopped and, and people could have got oh, off. That's clever. Okay. Yeah. So you debust on yeah. the roll. Uh, 10, 15K walk into where you're going at night, map and compass. Uh, the sky was pretty, pretty bright. Mm -hmm. uh, is this a seasonal thing or is this just Africa in general? Uh, Africa in general, well, that part of Africa, Equatorial or, or yeah. Yeah, north of the trough, you know, within uh, sunset and sunrise are basically the same time every day. So okay, you're not gotcha. getting like a long night and there's no twilight in Africa. Right, okay. Okay, sun goes right. down, it's black. <laughs> there you go. Okay, okay gotcha. it goes straight down. <laughs> yeah, so our, it was all map and compass, no GPS. Great. And that we could, we had good training, no problem doing 15, 20K mm. to a feature and arriving within. 50 meters of that feature with just your map and compass and you look up and yep I'm here okay yeah. it's right there in front of you so how much uh, just to go back earlier I was mentioning how uh, how many canteens of water were you carrying and uh, how two you'd have two two your, about a liter liters yeah, of water yeah. so two liters of water and um, and uh, uh, if we're going OPing we would take we would uh, take a jerry can, right. empty, okay. And why? Why? Because you don't want to carry a jerry can full of water for for twenty k, and that you take a, you take, you carry in an empty jerry can, but your op would be near a water feature. Our uh, of course, yeah. Our maps had where secret spots to get. Water were actually marked on, on our military maps where Smart. you could find water where there was no water. Interesting. So you may have to dig for it, but there's water there. Great. Uh, now, not all of it was pristine. Uh, how did you purify? Tablets. Tablets, and yeah. what do those taste like? <laughs> it's, Everything yeah. tasted of metal. <laughs> And there you go. Yeah. So, you know, TIA. There was no taste you couldn't get rid yeah. of with a yeah. can of Bully Bay. <laughs> okay, there you go. Um, and, you know, you guys you guys had, like, rations as well going into these OPs, obviously, because yeah. you, you could be there for t six technically days. six days. Six days? Okay. Yeah, you, would, you could carry in right. six days of rats. And that's, that's quite a, you know, that's... A lot of food, if you think about it. Lena, that's quite a bit of stuff. We, we thinned out our rats. We, there was right. a lot of stuff we didn't take in. They, there was a right. TV show in, in Rhodesia that would teach you how to do gourmet cooking with rat packs. <laughs> well, they were using water. 
<laughs> where? <laughs> yeah, where? I don't even. I'm not even brushing my teeth. You think I have that much water? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you, so there's a lot of stuff like you you just wouldn't eat. Right. All you need, you know, you wanted the chocolate, you wanted the protein. Yeah, the the critical, the essentials, the real stuff. Yeah. Now you're mentioning to me. Um, a mistake some people would make, some new troopies would make with uh, with mashed potatoes, <laughs> with powdered mashed potatoes specifically, and and uh, coffee. Yeah, we got we had we had instant potatoes, and we also had powdered milk, and the packaging was clear, so you could see there was white shit in there, but there was no label on them, and it, I don't think because. Anyway, that you you're could doing see a lot anyways. of stuff in the dark. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so if there was you a label, do not, you 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 can ruin a really good cup brew of tea that you worked very hard and wasted valuable water on. You can ruin it really quick by putting thinking you're putting powdered milk in your tea and you're actually putting in uh, instant mashed potatoes. <laughs> Get yourself all. So I never. That, that was the first thing I threw away on rats when I was packing to go on patrol, and that was the mashed potatoes. And it was, it was absolutely no way I was ever going to make them, and that. It's too much of a risk. Did have, but if you did have both on your person, right? If you held the package up to your ear, and and you sort of rolled it between your fingers, the mashed potato, powdered mashed potatoes would squeak. And the powdered milk didn't. So, yeah. <laughs> but you just didn't take the you didn't yeah. take a chance. You're I just like, didn't this take is, a chance. This I is just too, left the mashed potatoes behind. That would have been a disgusting stew. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so. Um, and yeah. it, it, and we had butter in like a toothpaste tube. Right. And I, there might have been something else in the tube. I I don't I'm not sure what it was. Uh, some sort of condiment, maybe, but you didn't care if you mixed those up. Okay, I mean, right. if, if, if you got, you know, you got butter, or if by mistake you got ketchup, big deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But tea and mashed potatoes don't work. No, that that is a, that is a morale killer. I've, I've heard well, of. after you, it takes a while to brew. Yeah, and you have again, you have very limited water, so yeah, yeah, man, that. That ruin that ruin your whole OP experience. Yeah. So you mentioned OPs are, and, and some of these like jobs you're doing are, are six days. But that f the, your first contact was over a three. This is seventy two hours. No, thirty. Thir thirty three, hours. Sorry. Thirty three zero. Three zero. Yeah. Um. So that's yeah. Like, we got a day and a we, day and a half. We got end of uh, an incident at like at first light. Right. And this is, and you're then, fresh out of battle and camp. And then 24 hours later, yeah. first light, uh, and then, yeah, that would be another six hours, so it would have been like early early afternoon that, that uh, we actually made contact. And that, so that was 24 plus six is 20, yeah, 30, hours. 30 hours. And that was, again, Fresh out of battle camp, you four days, and then like basically the next day you were in the bush. Yeah, my understanding. Well, you're oh, do, uh, doing OPs and do and and doing ambush. Right, and that with, uh, with the BSAP. Who who was um 
No. Or this, this is a Rhodesia Regiment. Rhodesia Regiment. Right. Yeah. So who, what kind of guys were you put with? Were these guys that had all done, well, they definitely had uh, done national service. Two, okay, the stick I was in, it was a four-man stick. Right. So there was, I was a machine gunner and the, and the corporal was actually a Brit that had service in the UK. Right. Uh, prior service before he came, came to Rhodesia. A uh, guy by the name of Mick Sharpley. Um, I think he'd done stuff in Northern Ireland. and uh, so He was pretty sharp. Uh, and, uh, and then the other two guys, and I, I'm, I can't remember their names, sorry. Uh, they were both Rhodesians. And, uh, so they were like national servicemen. And, uh, Format stick. So that's your unit organization. Yeah. yeah. Sticks. Yeah. And that's because, uh, I mean, you could operate as a group of eight, but it was two four-man sticks because of the capacity of the helicopters in right. Rhodesia. You could only more move a four, uh, four soldiers uh, at a time. And that. So everything was based on, on, on uh, a four-man stick. So. And that's, right. that's, that's why every fourth guy had a machine gun, uh, simply because you... Firepower. We could not operate without a, that. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know what you'd call it, a squad weapon, a platoon weapon. I mean, four guys are not, are not a platoon. Yeah, no, they're, they're not a section. They're not... They're just, that's why they're sticks. So, yeah, you, you needed that firepower for sure and yep. you were that firepower uh going in do you have any like apprehension to build because that for people that may not be a whipper that 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 firepower is like critical it's like in a in a firefight that's just all of your that's if, what you know suppresses the enemy that's what i <laughs> you know, it's critical so if somebody go if somebody goes down in a firefight, you mm -hmm. ignore them. You you run right past them, mm -hmm. unless he's the MAG gunner. Yep. You take his MAG. You take his MAG. Hundred <laughs> percent. No yeah. no question. Yep. yep. No question because you don't you you can't lose that firepower. Just. Yep. 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 Right. You might as well put up a white flag at that point. So. Yep. And I'm sure you like even after four days of battle camp, I'm sure you understood this because that. Those that haven't fired an MAG before, luckily, and you know my experience, I've had the opportunity a few times. It's it's quite the buzzsaw, and uh, it's it's not heavy. <laughs> actually, when, when you well, need it, when you need it, yeah, and it's not very heavy. Yeah, it's when you don't need it that it's a little heavy. No problem firing from the yeah. shoulder. Oh, back then you're you're firing from the shoulder, just letting it rip. It, well, it depends what kind of cover you're in. Right, right. It, uh, elephant grass is quite high, quite tall. Right. So if you're standing out in the middle of a, a, a patch of elephant grass, you hitting the ground, you cannot see anything. Yeah. You, you have to stand up. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you... You're, I guess you you must have been pretty like switched on and excited for that first uh, first contact. Uh, um, or were you? Were you well, what was your was first follow up? That it, first the, follow up, the, right? The exciting part was the is is actually the 
the the follow up is it, because it's so. Uh, you're so single-minded in right. The, the, well, we we actually well the group that we were chasing they they'd left the, a village headman and his wife for dead. They 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 had beaten them to what they thought were dead. Mm. The only thing. The problem was the headman wasn't dead, right? And that, so they were left for dead. His wife was dead. He actually came to and made contact with the security forces at first light to report what what had happened. He had a description that who they were, and that, and uh, we made, immediately engaged in a follow up. Or it was. Six, six gooks that had gone into the crawl mm -hmm. and decided they were going to make an example of him and his wife to the to, uh, the rest of the uh, people living in the crawl right. and basically brutally act, thought they'd executed the two of them and that and then and it was just and some then left it was just some thought crime it was some like. They collaborated with the Rhodesians. Well, if you're a headman, it means you're a sellout. It means you're you're cooperating with the government. Wow, you're that actually, that was it. That was just it? just because they had, I guess, like local authority. Head, headman would be the equivalent of like a mayor they, of like and, a village and, or whatever. Yeah, and being yeah. a headman of a crawl doesn't. It you didn't. It, it's not a government appointment. You're you're actually inherited this status through your own tribe. So it's a hereditary title. If you happen to have this hereditary title, you got beaten to death. You're the, you're the person the government I, I agents would talk to because right. you're the headman of the crawl. So be, just because you're talking to the government means you're now a sellout. Wow. Mm -hmm. Awesome logic. And you have to be taught a lesson. So, Well, there you go. Yeah. So, so, I mean, our... Our platoon got this information, yeah. uh, a description of them, and uh, a police tracker unit was was attached to us, and uh, we immediately started tracking them. Okay, right. and you use a you use a terminology, um, gook, which no doubt comes from the Malayan emergency, right? Because I, I, you know, they're the contacts. Uh, probably, I think or was it from Vietnam? Vietnam as well? Yeah, okay. I've heard it used in Nam. Um, yeah. Some sort of, I, I guess, racial connotations with Asians associated with it. But these guys were it, not it, Asians. It, it, yeah, no, not, definitely not. Yeah, they're not Orientals. It. I don't know the history of the word. Right. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay. It was. It, it was, a, was a word. Yeah. When I said when somebody said "gook," I know exactly what they're Roger who they're talking about. It right. would be a. I, I, if you want to really re reduce it to basics, we call them CTs, okay. which is communist terrorists. Right. Okay. Oh. That was like the official in a, in a contact report or... Yeah, uh, your uh, sit rep would, would refer to them as, as, as CTs. CT side right. Yeah, yeah. Right. And then just the common vernacular would have been gook. And that, who knows where that actually came from, but these guys were not Orientals. So for... Yeah. No, clearly, clearly, they weren't. They weren't Chinese soldiers. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. So you, somebody you, with an AK-47 is, is called a gook. Yeah, there you go. Done. <laughs> Simple definition. Good enough for me. Good enough for me as well. Um, so you, so you, uh, you engage in this track. What is your position? Like, what, what is your role? Other than obviously being the MAG gunner, um, how are you guys operating? Are you guys operating kind of... You've mentioned to me in the past your leapfrogging. Can you kind of describe that for us as um, and how that relates to that tracking? Okay, what, tracking process. Talking, okay. what, what does a Rhodesian follow up look like? Yeah, what does okay. a Rhodesian follow up look like? Okay, uh, you start the last known sighting. Yep. Uh, your trackers establish either, either you've got. Uh, first-hand information at how many are in a group or whatever right. or you uh, they're very good at looking at the ground and based on foot tracks figuring out how many are in a group right. okay and then in this instance we we, we uh, knew that there were six and the trackers established that the six were traveling together based on uh, spore. Mm -hmm. okay. I don't know. They draw some circle in the ground. They count how many footsteps are in that circle. They can, yeah, they can guesstimate how many people just walked right. through that circle. I don't know how they do it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, way of, the way a follow-up works is... What you're trying to establish is a line of flight. If you get a line of flight, then you have an, an, an and you know what direction they're heading in, and if you've got some idea of what what their objective mm. is, either they're trying to make it to a, a certain village or, or a town or a feature or something, uh, once you've got that line of flight, uh, then you can take your, take your tracker and move them several K ahead and do a cast right. to see if they pick up the same tracks again on that line of flight. And that just saved you two hours of walking. That's right. Okay. Yeah, that, yeah from my understanding, the, the best counter-tracking measure to avoid being tracked and lean on the other side is just time and distance, right? So you, well, I, I mean, the tracker is just is just making up for that time and distance that uh, the quarries got you're you're, oh, you're by catching casting. up you're by just going casting line it. of flight and, and, yeah. and going ahead and casting yeah. you get, you're, yeah, you're not you you're get, not following footsteps you've now, the whole way. You've now yeah. got two hours yeah. closer to them exactly now, which is what you want you actually want to get ahead of them exactly yeah okay and and that 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 was the role that the, the two sticks that i was a member of right of was that you're we trying. figured they were. We figured they were. They were going to cross the river and try to get back into Mozambique. This is a, this is the first follow up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so they would move us ahead to ambush a trail that they think they, they could be on ahead of the trackers. Right. And that, and we would be, object of us would be to get even to get ahead of the of the gooks. And that. And that, and if the trackers or units or whatever, uh, and that got a different line of flight, they they would move us uh, as a stop group. In that. 
Yeah, so almost it, does, it nothing happened. It's now mm. see we're talking about okay, this was in the morning, so we're doing this leapfrogging, casting, right. whatever, towards the border during the day. We don't you don't track at night. It all stops. Okay, oh yeah, yeah last, you just you just can't. Yeah. So we'd been we'd been moved into two what looked like two crossing points that they could possibly be heading for, and and uh, so we set set up an ambush and and stayed there for the night. Uh, and it looked like we that we. They were still heading for these two points, so in the morning we, both both of our sticks, uh, which were on two different tracks for crossing, and that uh, we we stayed there uh, in ambush, and I guess it was a little after, a little after uh, afternoon. Uh, we need, uh, needed to go get water. We were near the river, and uh, so yeah. So uh, Mick and I went to the river bank, and uh, the river was quite low, so there was quite a bit of uh, gravel bar or whatever. That Mick had to walk out to, to actually find to get water in the river, and I just stayed in cover at, at the at the side of the. Uh, the embankment, and uh, and our two guys were back, still back in our ambush position, and that's when the six of them basically walked through. They were not walking on uh, the trail that we were ambushing. Sorry, this is the they six actually, um, the six ETs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They actually. I say they walked through the back of our ambush. I, did, I mean, they didn't actually literally walk yeah. <laughs> right yeah. next to the guys, but they they were coming from the wrong direction. They were right. not walking in front of the, our ambush position. Right. They were they were coming at at ninety degrees and actually walked across the right where what was being amb ambushed and straight to the river and. Uh, so even though even though our two guys could see what the hell was going on, right? I mean, we we knew there were supposed to be six, and obviously they couldn't do anything mm -hmm. <laughs> until at least six people had walked by them, because yeah, yeah. They, the other there could be more and it could be behind them, so. Yeah, it was. They were kind of compromised, and the best thing to do was just you know, like play dead. <laughs> That's right. Wait out and. So what? Basically, what we ended up with is six of them coming up to the riverbank, and th this is actually where they're where they're planning on crossing to get back. Yeah, you get back into Mozambique. And, Spotting Mick in the open, out in the middle of the sandbar. And, yeah, that's right. Uh, and uh, yeah, then. It... So, did they did they uh, did they engage contact? Like, like fire at you first, or 
how did how did that seek? I uh, I engaged. Okay. You you from kicked it off. Flank. You okay. kicked it off from the flank. Yeah. It was you. And I'm sure, like this point, you were single-minded as single-minded could go. Um, pr- probably like first time ever firing a weapon in anger. I assume. Well, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't. You just turn him into a figure eleven in your mind, I guess. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> uh, I couldn't yell to Mick because then I that would serve no purpose. The, the yeah. best the best way to let Mick know that shit was coming down on him was to op- open up. You know, it was just like instinct, almost just. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, it was the quickest way for him to know. And uh, I, yeah. I went for the the guy in the lead. Right, the one that was the one that was becoming the closest to Mick. Okay. Now, what was this engagement distance like? Under like, were, were they close enough that you could physically see? Oh, we're, we're under a hundred yards. Okay, they're close. They're, they're, yeah. The lead guy. Right. Okay. So you lit him up the day. I I lit him up. Yeah. Obviously, Mick. Obviously, reacted and started to do something. There. Number six. They're they're the last guy. Right. In that, uh, was an RPG gun. Right. And he turned to engage me. And then he became my primary. Roger. Did he? Did he get a round off? Did he? Uh... I have. I don't know. Okay. He did. He. Yeah. I. He. He turned and I opened up. Okay. Okay. And it was. That. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. He took a very long time to fall down, and that's because I put a fifty-round belt through him. I didn't know why he wouldn't fall down. And what, why did he not fall down? Uh, he was just... I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> just one of those things. That's 50 rounds of... That's a... That's 7.62 NATO. It's a big... That's a big... Yeah. Ball, I, ball rounds. In my mind, I was not going to stop until he fell down. And right. he... And I, I do not know if 7.62 NATO... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if a burst like like that kept him up, but I know when when the belt ran out, he fell down. Right. Yeah. So I engaged the, the first one that was closest to me. Mm-hmm. He went down, and but he was he was not looking at me. Okay, he was like running at at the river. Right. And, well, the whole group of them were, but I engaged the first one, the one that was closest to Mick. I I know Mick went to ground and did did something, but the the G gunner was my next target, and mm-hmm. yeah, I I I don't I don't know why I don't know why I 
finish that belt. That's a that's, and that's that, a, so, wow. Yeah, I got the I got the first guy. I got the G gunner, and Mick nailed. That's two. Mick nailed three. And one got away. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's just the stick of you that had. It sounded like just you and Mick were the only guys able to engage. Because again, they had yeah, the other the other, yeah, the guys, other guys were, just, out the, were out of the picture. Yeah. They, they they were compromised and yeah. had their heads down. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And you guys just basically had. You you've mentioned to me basically like Mick was filling canteens. You guys were just kind of listening, and then, yeah, you guys just had to adapt on on the. Yeah, I was covering Mick while he while right. he while he was exposed and mm-hmm. on the uh, gravel bank getting water, filling yeah. So it was really just just the two of you guys, uh, and uh, yeah, you guys got the drop on him basically. Yeah, but well, they were. I mean, these guys were hightailing it. I mean. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like they were in any kind of formation or sweep line or anything like that. They were just like Indian file yeah, getting true. the hell out of Rhodesia. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, no. I, I learned, I mean, I learned something from that, from that contact. Uh, it's, as a gunner is like it's a really like if you think of you think of a machine gunner lying on the ground with a bipod doing suppressive fire or doing mm-hmm. but man, this this was like a fire hose stand up duel at fifty feet. <laughs> Jeez. Wow. But, well, I've shown you my bring back. Yeah. And that. You jammed his weapon. Yeah. Right away, it looks like. Yeah. I put two rounds through his drum mag. Yeah. So his gun was stopped. Yeah, I didn't go. So. That's, that's, that's incredible. That, then that was your, your first follow up. Yeah. Uh, 30 hours. I'm assuming like you didn't get to ground at all through that whole period because you were well at night when we were in ambush. Right. Uh, I'm sure we were taking turns. I can't remember. We got smarter than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we ended up we we ended up taking training for a thing. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Transcendental meditation. Okay. Really in Rhodesia, like official. Official. Wow. Really, because you can you can put yourself into like a sleep pattern brain yeah. situation yeah. where you your body is getting the same rest as deep sleep, but you're still awake. Roger that. Wow, I, that's interesting. Sort of like conscious mind is awake, but well, yeah, it's just lizard it's, brains asleep. It, yeah. yeah. Restful awareness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 20, yes. 20 minutes of, of really good transcendental meditation 
is the equivalent of like four hours sleep. Wow. We need to learn how to do that. I never learned that in the military. Yeah. <laughs> I was just told don't sleep. <laughs> yeah, I've, that's, that's I've ruined it now. I actually use it to go to sleep, which is not what you want to oh, do. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But it's too effective. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right on. So. Yeah, I can I couldn't, I, I, I could not sleep in the bush with good conscience because I snore. <laughs> okay, yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. That's uh, we got the yeah. you know, if you're in an ambush then you you know, yeah, you can be awake and do the sentry thing and, and all that, but it doesn't allow for the fact that three of the guys snore their fucking head off. <laughs> like Yeah. How that, That's amazing. I never Sorry, I just swore on your tape. That's uh, it's okay. so well, so it's all good. Um, yeah, but train, so yeah. if if we were if we were going in in later stages if we were going to ground, yeah, uh, we did not post sentries. We did not stay together. We would bombshell up into the rocks. Yeah, not sleep on a trail. Just mm. and that and make sure we did a we regrouped before for you know half right. an hour before first light. That's what we did. And we didn't carry sleeping bags. We just used a. A, uh, a wool blanket because it doesn't make any noise. I mean, right, noise yeah. is everything. So yeah, mm -hmm. but yeah. So that 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 was basically a standard Rhodesian follow up. Mm -hmm. you, you would do that and track, and I mean, it's really really hard work. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. Uh, well, just to be single minded that long. Um, yeah. Knowing that there is, you know, another player involved, oftentimes, that is armed, so. And, you know. Yeah, so at the end of that contact, uh, we, uh, using drag nets uh, with an Alouette helicopter, we took the, uh, took the five bodies back to the uh, police station at Wukumbura. Uh, and then Special Branch Police, uh, they would have come and fingerprinted and photographed uh, all the bodies. The headman that had survived that uh, brutal attack that left his wife dead, uh, he got to come and see the bodies, and we promised him we'd get them, and we did. You did. His only comment was there was one missing, and we told him we did the best we could. It was a long two days, but uh, 
on his face. You guys got him. I think, um, yeah. for what it's worth, I think you, you did him justice, right? You guys... When you know why you're having to do something you don't want to do, uh, it makes it worthwhile. After that. Yeah. He probably, he probably would have got a reward uh, for the information he gave us. I think the I think the bounty on on terrorists was like a thousand dollars each, so he would have got five thousand dollars for that. But he lost his life. Right. Anyway, so yeah. um, you have additional call-ups, several yeah. more call-ups. Uh, two more. Two more call-ups, right? And uh, yeah, yeah. The next one was not. It was a year later. Uh, so you're again. you're working oh. in between these call-ups still. You're working. Oh, yeah. Same yeah. same thing. Yeah. The way way it worked is when you got called up, you got re you you got army pay, and your employer was obliged to make up the difference uh, between your uh, civilian job. And and your army call up pay, mm -hmm. so you didn't you didn't lose any money. Uh, they couldn't you, you couldn't shut down commerce and industry to fight a war, and uh, so that that's why it was done on a rotating basis, and you you basically you kept your civilian job, mm -hmm. and uh, and you went back to it, and uh, so. Uh, and of course, everybody you you worked with was doing the same thing, and uh, so yeah. you know, you, I'm sure you know uh, military like in Canada, they're they're like invisible. They they'll go off and do a, a tour in, in Afghanistan or go, you know, have to deal with uh, with the dark side of life and. They actually don't come back to Canada and stay as a unit. Guys come back here and they bombshell. They go back to units and they go back to working with their regular guys that never went overseas. Yep. And uh, yeah, they're, they're invisible. They, they got no one to talk to. Whereas in Rhodesia we did. Uh, we were all doing the same things. We, it, you didn't have to carry around secrets, like I'm sure guys here do. Just an observation. Was that? that I must think have a lot of the guys coming back right in the Second World War, and right. that they were kept together. They came back together in the mm -hmm. in the same troop ships. You know, they yeah. they got to decompress together and we didn't reduce it we got we got to decompress that, that must have helped the transition because again you you mentioned that these call-ups are call-ups there's no there's no debate there's no argument you're going or you're like you know you're basically screwed if you don't go so you, you go and uh and then you're going back to just 
being typesetting again, right? You're going, you're going back to work, yeah. uh, and it just must have made the transition a lot easier. Yeah, just being did. able to have guys who are well, basically everybody around you, more or less, mm-hmm. of the same age, mm-hmm. going through the same thing, okay. right? All those emotions and all the stories and stuff and, and stuff that yeah you'd normally keep yeah. to yourself under any other context. You have basically foxhole buddies yeah. everywhere, yeah. yeah, right, which was which was positive. Um, I I remember coming back from my, that that uh, six weeks yeah. at uh, Mukambara, and one of the uh, desert rat vets at work. Yeah. Uh, his name was Les Schultz. He's quite the comedian. When I got back, I said, Les, how long did you go without a shower mm-hmm. when you were in North Africa during the war? He said, 18 months. I said, how come you never told me that before I left <laughs> for six weeks? Yeah. You do know that we stopped at a, the agricultural grounds at Bendura and they burnt our uniforms and give us clean kit yeah. <laughs> to come back into town. But yeah. you didn't bother to tell me that you went 18 months without a bath. <laughs> yeah. Things they don't tell you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had to smell like the bush. Uh, you yeah. didn't brush your teeth. You had no soap. Had, yeah. 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 Well, it's, a, it's amazing when you're um, just even after a few days in the bush stuff like perfume and deodorant mm-hmm. I'm talking maybe even like four days when you acclimate to the smell of the bush that stuff is like overwhelming yes yeah. right yeah. so if you're doing stuff like brushing your like you can smell it from pretty significant distance yeah um yeah we smell like the bush pretty quick yeah <laughs> and it's that's a, that's man that's like literally life or death thing because yeah. you if you don't like you know yeah. you're compromised um, yeah, but that was pretty funny. <laughs> 18 months. 18 months. Why? Was it a problem? <laughs> uh, yeah, so yeah. I did, it was a, a year before yeah. I got a, another call-up, and uh, same again, OPs, ambushes, yeah. and that uh, that tour I got malaria. Um, How did that all was. How was that onset? Was that, that was in o- October. That's the right. hottest month of the year in Rhodesia before the rains come. Right. Okay. So it's like. Did you feel just symptoms right away and start feeling ill? Oh yeah. I, w- I woke up in the morning and I I was cold, just freezing cold. Oh. I was I had a sweater on. I had my uh, combat jacket on. Mm-hmm. I was in a sleeping bag. And I was shivering, and it was 42 degrees Celsius outside. Jeez. That would have been unsettling as... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that... And I... So... And I had the screaming abjabs with it as well. Which didn't what, what, are, what are those like? Uh, well, I was open both ends. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, that's one way of putting that. Yeah. Okay, so... Yeah, I got, I got sent to a field hospital... I think mm-hmm. I was there a 
maximum of four days and it was okay you slacker <laughs> that was the attitude here, here's, here's your MAG you're, you're back on wow. OP again yeah wow no kidding yeah I, I, I didn't get it treated properly until until I was uh, released from that tour wow so you went right back into the bush with um, a little bit of discomfort to what it mildly yeah and that's that's nuts and I'd taken my Tuesday pill it's just one of those flukes of flukes of war yeah right fog of war you were mentioning earlier 50 round it's a belt did not drop that you know no, that that in the first follow-up. I don't know if there was something behind him holding him up, uh, like yeah. a, a tree or, or or a scrub or mm -hmm. or something. But it's yeah, it it added added to my training experience. Right. Okay. Uh, just things you don't expect, and like well, getting malaria is. You know, if it. If there's ten or a thousand, you engage your target mm -hmm. until it goes down. Yeah, it just it was just drilled into you. You, yeah, one at a time. Mm -hmm. How did you get through uh, mentally the that at last you know that that malaria bush trip? Like, is that uh, were you still hyper focused, or you know, were you just slogging along? Also, were the guys were the guys in the field sympathetic to you? Because I must, you know. Well, there was a bit of an attitude that oh, you probably didn't take your pill. Ah, okay. Okay. Which, which so like, okay, you you need to be charged. It's like, what okay. are you talking about? <laughs> Roger, it's yeah, sort yeah. of like I didn't go and get a sunburn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You. The classic, you know, the self-inflicted injury charge was yeah, that okay. Yeah. So literally, it was like, okay, slacker, you're going back in the field. Yeah, deal. All right. a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just one of the bullshit. Just a military thing, I guess. <laughs> just uh, take a knee drink water. Oh. Well, I was a long-distance runner. Right, okay. right. Uh, like from high school and that. So it's... And that probably helped with your endurance. Yeah, with you just, like... So what if you can't feel your legs? Just crack on. Yeah. Roger that. Yeah. So eventually you do finally after after all those bus trips um, with with uh, which which regiment which uh, Rhodesia regiment was this? Yeah, which fifth battalion? battalion. Fifth battalion Rhodesia regiment. Yeah. Um, you go over to uh, the the police reserve finally after. I changed jobs. You changed I, jobs. I, I left. I, I yeah. I finished my three years with the uh, Rhodesia Printing and Publishing mm -hmm. and that. So I, uh, a job came up at Government Printers in Salisbury and I applied for that. So I left the Herald, went to Government Printers. Uh, my foreman at Government Printers uh, was in the police reserve and he said, why don't you join the police reserve? And I said, well, I need my employer. employer. I told him what happened at the Herald, and they, mm -hmm. they wouldn't sign off. He said, oh, no, government, government printers will sign off. You can join. Okay. 
So now I had to get released from the army, and uh, right. they sent me another call-up paper, and it was like, oh no, I want to join the police reserve. So I got into a home. Uh, you were saying when you got your call-up papers, you didn't have a choice. Well, you do, did if you wanted to try to fight it. Okay. My my yeah. fight was, I am still under a five-year exemption. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would like to join the A Reserve. And I ended up getting the Minister of Defense, uh, P.K. Vanderbilt's office into it. And he wrote me a really nice letter uh, thanking me for doing my bit. And absolutely, you can you can go to the police reserve. Wow. So they released me and okay. uh, I reported uh, to Morris Depot to start my police training in, uh, in the A Reserve. Okay. Now the A Reserve uh, was ex you did exactly the same as a regular cop. Uh, your uniform was the same. Yeah. In fact, BSAP uh, sign up uh, was a three year contract. Mm -hmm. Only after three years did you become a senior patrol officer. So a lot of the a lot of the guys in the police had three years or less training. The A Reserve guys had been in, like I ended up doing nine years in the A Reserve, in that. So I had I had more experience than most of the most of the new police recruits. So A Reserve was really really a critical part of the BSAP. In that is that we had a lot of us had longer service than the regular guys did. So, uh, so I went to Morris Depot, did police training at the academy, and that, and then I was assigned to the uh, uh, police station that I'd chosen, which was uh, Marlborough or Marlboro, as they call it there, uh, which was part rural, part urban and that. So I got to do some rural policing when I was at that station and that. And then I transferred to Salisbury Central and went on to, on to B cars, which was the uh, uh, involved in a more advanced driving course and, and things like that. So and what were those B cars? Uh, Peugeot. Peugeot's Peugeot, French, French Peugeot's. Yeah. yeah. Um, and for, for those like trying to picture it, it's just like, think, 70s cop car almost, 60s, 70s cop car, basically, right? Would you have sirens and. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sirens just. Siren, a little blue light on the top. A little blue light on the top. Probably BSAP marked on the door and. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but we. The B cars were only. I think only Salisbury and Bulawayo had uh, like a central police station and had B cars. And, uh, um, and any, yeah, we dealt with any, any reports in, in the greater Salisbury area. So you were... Oh, I was going to add. Oh, so yeah. So I'm... I'm it started off at Marlboro with just doing like one night a week, and that, and right. then as uh, 
under some sort of act. Uh, we had to do more and more. Uh, right. Because the war was intensifying, yeah, basically. Yeah. and there, there were more... Like, and as you mentioned, every every co- like incident where there was terrorist incursions or whatever was treated as a police action. <clears throat> so you guys were needed all the time. Um, just to... Well, especially in the rural areas. Yeah. And that, that was... That was your main uh, uh, presence, uh, military-wise, would be the regular police force yeah. at all the rural uh, police stations. At, at one point, uh, our, our normal uh, district police uniform would be khaki shorts and a blue sh- a gray shirt and mm-hmm. Police cap. Um, we changed to wearing camouflage at the police stations. Uh, what was that? Was that just a, a presence thing when you got out to the rural areas? Or well, you, you, yeah, your gray shirt and you know uh, wasn't very good camouflage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> certainly. But we got feedback from the locals that they wanted to know why when, when there was a terrorist presence, mm-hmm. why the police left and the army came. And that was their interpretation of the police now wearing camouflage yeah. was that the army had arrived. Right, right. Okay. So we had to wear our peak cap with our camouflage. Then we were still police. Police, yeah. Okay. And, and that was really important to the to the locals because mm-hmm. they had a lot of trust in the police force. And yeah, part part of me being in, in uh, police a reserve is I was doing regular police work at a regular police station, uh, first Marlboro Station, and then the Salisbury Central Station, yep. where I got training on driving the pursuit vehicles. And uh, I, I still had I had to do that, at, based on whatever my commitment was. And as time went on, I, I ended up basically being attached uh, to a unit at the police station, and I worked. the same schedule as they did. So I worked with four relief totally, did all their time and that, but still had to go to work at some point during the day as well. So I was basically pulling a short shift at work and doing a full shift at the police station every day in that. And I would work their schedule. So if they are working day shift, I work day shift, afternoon shift, night shift. And you still have to go to work, um, normal normal work, like not not the A reserve, but you'd have to go back to typesetting. Now, at this stage, were you, again, statute of limitations, were you involved in, um, we, we've talked about this before, the, the counterfeiting stuff? That was at government printers. At government okay, printers. I, did, I was two years at government printers. Right. And I worked in uh, the press that I ran was in the security section. So I worked behind a cage and mm-hmm. I had an elevator that went up the security binding and that and uh, the, 
assistant that I had, uh, African machine feeder. Yeah. Uh, he was illiterate on purpose. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, because you were um, helping the Rhodesian government, which at this point was very heavily sanctioned by, by the rest of the world. They couldn't yeah. get the basics in, right? They couldn't get anything in from anywhere other than South Africa, basically. Because um, yeah. at, at this stage, Mozambique was no longer Portuguese. Right. It was now Mozambique as we know it today. So Rhodesia was alone, more or less. And you uh, you did stuff to help the government at this stage while you're working for them. Um, yeah, to... Stuff being exported from, from Rhodesia yeah. uh, would have to arrive somewhere and it would need documentation as to origin. Right. And that's what we would forge, uh, certificates of origin. And we'd also do bills of lading for shipping. And that, and that uh, the government would get blank copies of official documentation for different countries. Mm -hmm. And we would reprint them. And we did... Irish passports. Yep. A lot of a lot of Rhodesian businessmen would have would be, have been traveling on Irish passports. Uh, well, over sanction busting. Right. Uh, I was doing security mapping. We would do. The Canberras would fly over parts of Mozambique. Right. Take aerial photographs. We already had existing contour mapping. Right. But we wanted to add a photograph of any changes of features on the ground. Yeah. In that. So it would be a contour over top, a grade photograph, and then there would be uh, rivers and roads. Right. And that. So it was a four color map that. Basically, the Canberras were doing overflight, and with it, 24 hours, we would have printed, you know, 50 copies of a yeah. particular map. So, if I was doing a mapping for a certain grid in Mozambique, I knew that we were doing something there tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're the right guy for the job because, as you, as we've talked about. Previously, like you, you had the typesetting background, obviously, so you know how stuff gets printed, mm -hmm. and you're a bit of an artist before, mm -hmm. long before you'd shown up in in uh, Rhodesia or South Africa, or even before New Zealand. Like when you were younger and you just got out of high school, you were drawing. Like you, you did some um, some work for your local paper as an artist. So, as well, you're BSAP. So you were you were yeah. a good you're a good yeah. guy for the job. Yeah. And, and they uh, they had a file on me. Yeah. Uh, special branch knew who I was, and right. uh, there there'd been some background checks. Yeah. Uh, when those two girls, Canadian girls, uh, were killed at Victoria Falls. Yeah. I actually had a couple of T-shirts silk screened for myself, mm -hmm. and I got investigated by special branch. Yeah. They thought I was giving. Apparently somebody got wind of it and mm -hmm. reproduced them in somewhere else in 
South Africa or whatever. Okay. Okay. And it was like they wanted to know if I how many copies of this T-shirt had I uh, made and what why, and it was basically a Canadian flag with bullet holes in it that said I survived Vic Falls. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so was, they were aware of you before, like very early on. <laughs> well, yeah. after. Government printers. Yeah. I ended up working for the National Observer, which was a black newspaper. Yeah. Uh, oh. And I had I had to take uh, proof copies of the newspaper to the Earl Grey Building for censorship before right. it was published. And that and uh, a guy by the name of Boss Lilford uh, was like. CIA type Rhodesian yeah. uh, security thing and it was his office that uh, would do the, any censorship on what what we were publishing yeah and he knew he knew who I was and, uh, mm. he, knew, he, he knew that I'd worked at government printers and the kind of stuff I'd been doing there well, it was the Prime Minister's department yep. I was actually working for. Wait, was the Observer uh, at this point Muzariwas already? Like pro <coughs> UANC, I think? Pro um, Muzariwa. Muzariwa, right. Yeah. And that's so for those that yeah, aren't, I was the only, aren't tracking, we'll just give a little background to this. Basically, the only white guy there. I was yep. the production manager <laughs> there, and all of the staff and editorial were, were all. All black nationalists. They're all pro uh, Bishop Mazzaro. Yep. Now these were black nationalists, though, that did not necessarily support Nakomo or Mugabe's faction. Uh, they were they were their own thing, and for that reason, like they were, they were more in the zeitgeist, I guess, in a conventional moderate, moderate. Yeah. They're moderates, right? Mm-hmm. And. Um, they had some pretty prominent, you know, Satoli and stuff, very prominent supporters at the time. I think a lot of people don't know that side of the history because, like, eventually when uh, Muzariwa takes power, it's only for that, how, how long? You remember, like, a year or so? Less than a year. Less than a year. Yeah. So, like, no... Most of the, like, the big external ops happen during that period, yeah. too. Yeah. But uh, that being said... There were moderate blacks in Rhodesia that wanted kind of this move to. Arguably, the majority of them were. Would you Would you say that? I don't know. I, a lot of the guys I worked with at the National Observer, ended up voting for Mugabe. Really, really surprised me. Yeah. <laughs> Was this just like a? A buyer's remorse during the Zim- Zimbabwe Rhodesia period, because again they were conducting the biggest ops of the war during, and it was more conventional. You know, they're like toe to toe with Frelimo, right? Versus these. Uh... They they when 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 Bishop Mozarero got voted in, they thought a lot of people hoped the war was over, right? Although the opposite happened. It, yeah. yeah. It, it, it got to its most conventional, mm-hmm. direct, you know, T 55s against, uh, you know, Rhodesian Armored Courage and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's almost like 
okay, if you don't vote for Mugabe, we don't care which black party you vote for. If you don't vote in Mugabe's party, the war will never end. That was the attitude. He will, ne he will never succeed. He'll never... He'll never give up the fight. Yeah. Unless you vote for him. Unless you vote for him. It's almost not necessary. We're going to keep playing this yeah. game until the loser wins. And when he wins, then the war will stop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Last man standing. Very Mao's yeah. Red Book, yeah. right? Just. And again, uh, Mugabe was more influenced by the Soviets. Nakoma was. Sorry. Other the way around, around. Chinese. Chinese. Yeah, he yeah. was very heavily influenced by the Chinese and then later had North Korean support. And that, that was for, to yeah. re that the Chinese way of waging a insurgency is to beat the peasants to death. Yeah. Last not, man standing. Not, not the government, not yeah. it's just to, to wage atrocities on mm. the innocent until they submit. Yeah. And that I mean how many how many times do they have to come in there and and kill all the people with gray hair and say the teenagers are now in charge. Because mm -hmm. that's what they were doing. Yeah. And and towards the um towards the I think I mean, they were killing the they're Killing the school teachers. They, yeah. You know, welcome to Cambodia. Towards the end of the war, you wrote... Uh, Dip attendants. Agricultural demonstrator. Anybody that was doing anything yeah. to help people get ahead, they were killing them. Just to completely demoralize everybody, yeah. right? So they wouldn't have... And then, so... I don't think... Just from how I've I've read it, I don't think that like the expansion of the external operation. They're kind of too little, too late at that stage with Muzariwa, and you know, I guess they were demor pretty demoralized at that point. You you wrote a, a poem towards the end of the war. Um, I don't know if you have it with you, uh, but you you go over the same those exact same sentiments um, about the journalists and stuff that were trying to cover the war at, at, at this stage. <laughs> they that was one of my one one of my better days. What you you talking about when they left their camera equipment sitting outside the front of government? Oh yeah, house? yeah, yeah. So they did that. Why don't you tell that story? Um, <laughs> yeah, that this would would have been Soames. I think was already. It was during the ceasefire. Yeah, Soames was already in. So the uh, British Rhodesia uh, was now. Yeah, the colony of Southern Rhodesia, and again, I'm, I'm yeah. now uh, a British cop. <laughs> I, I now have a Union Jack as my flag. Yeah, um, so pretty rapid yeah, change. The, yeah. yeah, the press were all outside of uh, uh, Ian Smith's residence. Yeah, and anyway, Smith and his his group leave to go somewhere else, and now yeah. the press is like loading their vehicles to go chasing him. Well, BBC <laughs> left a bag full of camera equipment sitting right nice. the gate. So I called the bomb squad <laughs> and we blew it up. So. <laughs>
<laughs> That's hilarious. So, <laughs> he called the Pop Squad. Oh, man. So, anyways, um, it's... I'll probably have to do this again, because there's yeah. just so many... There's so... It, like, this is... A, a lot of people think that this story is a is a simple one, and it's not, right? Like, you're... you're First off, like, your personal story of how you ended up in Rhodesia is long. Well, like, it's, it's, a, it's an adventure. My, my whole... My whole career in yeah. in the printing industry, yeah, is was running parallel to all this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, uh, yeah. I, I'm working as a lino operator at uh, yeah. at the Rhodesia Herald, and it, it's a good job. I'm getting to see news that's you know as it's break, <laughs> breaking, and I'm actually yeah. setting the type for it. And uh, you're helping. Then sing. I get a chance to go to government printers, and I'm busting sanctions, do, doing sanctions yeah. busting and counterfeiting and, and fake passports and, and all the rest. Yep. And that was great. Then I go to work at the National Observer, which yeah. is a newspaper that is promoting a moderate African leader who eventually became the Prime Minister yep. of Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, and he he promised us that if he got in, that he would look after us because he knew it, it, it was that newspaper that kept him front and center yep. as being the right person mm -hmm. to win that election. And he did. He won that election in a, land, in a landslide. Right. And, no. then, and then what happened yeah. is I went to the bush. Yep. I was the production manager there. I went to the bush. I come back. And there's a new guy sitting in my desk, a white guy, an uh -huh. old guy. Yep. Uh, Bill, Bill Green. Uh, he's like an auditor, and it's like I'm. What's going on? Like, do I still have a job? Anyway, he real cool guy. He'd come out of retirement. He'd been the CEO of Martin Printers. He was a pilot uh, during the Second World War. He had a great story. Uh, anyway, I was worried about my job. So I went and made an appointment with George Capon, who was the managing director of uh, the Rhodesia Herald. Right. To see if, if I could get a job back at the Herald again. Because I was worried that my job at National the National Observer. Observer was like on the line. Yeah. He said, You don't need to put in an application. Just go go back to the Observer. Everything's going to be fine. You've got nothing to worry about. Uh, I said, I was looking for a, a junior management position at the Herald. And, uh, and he said, No, just leave things as they are. Uh, anyway. Two weeks later, there's a big announcement at National Observer. George Capon's at the Observer. The Herald just bought the National Observer. In that, and he, George walks over me. He says, "You know that junior management job you're looking for? <laughs> You've got it." <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. So I had all. Yeah, the whole that whole life. Yeah. Of my real career. Going on. In the meantime, yeah. I'm doing 192 days a year in uniform, like wow. everybody else. 
well, things do eventually wind down, and because Muzariwa's government does not, call, it's just not recognized internationally. That's yeah. the issue, yeah. uh, because Mugabe very famously refuses to take part in that election. He's, yeah. He is offered like, "Hey, you can partake," and he says no. Under, um, uh, oh, there, there were would have been conditions. There, yeah, there would have been conditions. There had to right? been a yeah. ceasefire and a stand down yeah. and all sorts of things like, and yeah. you won't, you won't. Take up arms again if you lose the election, and yeah, and that was like, not like yeah, it, yeah, okay, you know, stop it's being Queens, a terrorist. It's yeah. Queensbury yeah. rules, okay? yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and he was like, uh, uh-uh, uh, no, no, because that's not his mindset. That's that. That's yeah. not that. That was not their mindset. So, it's it, the Muzariwa government just it can't because the sanctions don't end. That's a key thing, and South Africa like is no longer. Well, we got Kissinger in there, yeah. And South Africa thought that they, if they offer up Rhodesia, that it's going to, somehow they're going to be recognized and they can carry on with apartheid forever. Yeah. It's like, which, which was not happening in Rhodesia. It's the opposite. Um, so, yeah, you were sacrificed basically to, to a great extent to keep up apartheid in South Africa. Yeah. Um, and, for another yeah. like twenty years. For another twenty most. years, yeah. yeah, a pretty broken, bad, gnarly, and unpopular system that yeah. didn't exist in that the Rhodesians didn't quite have. Uh, very unfortunate, but you know, stuff winds down, and and there, there's a day a, again. A, a lot of good, positive changes that would have taken place yeah. in Rhodesia if it had been recognized mm-hmm. were held back to be part of a internationally recognized settlement. Yeah. Yep. It was it was Rhodesia against the world, really. Yeah. Yeah. So there comes a day basically where um well, initially you do decide you want to go to South Africa because this is, you're you're actually present. Um, and again, we we'll, we might have to cover this in another podcast because mm-hmm. it's a it's a whole other story. But you're present when it's it's all over. Mugabe's won the election. Mm-hmm. Um, he's handing over. Prince Charles is actually present, handing over power. In a nutshell, you're actually again you're you're Salisbury at this point, right? Yeah. And uh, you're attached to his. Personal security. For personal security yeah, detail, and yeah, you're yeah. you're ready to bug out. You've got med med facilities underground, and your orders are: if anything happens, Prince Charles is coming up. Mugabe is somebody else's problem, yeah. <laughs> and, and every other head of state. Oh yeah, every other head of state too. It's like good luck, guys. Um, yeah. I'm here for Prince Charles exclusively. So that was. Uh, yeah, we were the. You're there. Heart extraction. Heart extraction. And, uh, but I guess the writing's on the wall and you're thinking about going to South Africa at this point. I think it was around this time you got married. Yeah. Yeah. You got married <coughs> to a Rhodesian woman and, um, you told me this, that at this point you are now the Zimbabwe National Police. Yeah. And at your wedding. Zimbabwe. Okay. You had, you had, uh, you yeah. had, you had your, on your uniform, technically you were Zimbabwe National Police, but you're cheeky and, um... <laughs> I'm pretty sure you yep. s- you steal them. You stole BSAP pit or you st- no no. We still had we okay. You we still, still had them. We all st- we st- yeah. we st- still had our ins- insignia. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
we were getting married at the police chapel. Yeah. Okay, at Morris Depot. It's a lay minister that's marrying us, who happens to be the farrier at Morris Depot. Right. He's a police. Okay, he's a, a horse inspector like, of some sort. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that. I make application for an honor guard with lances for the wedding. Yep. Turn down, can't have the lances. This is Mugabe. Can't, okay. Can't have the lances. That's only for my guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I tell the pastor that, and he says, uh, they're not his lances, they're my lances. Because that's where they're at. They yeah, are. that's a very yeah. depot. Yeah. And that, so he said, I'll bring the lances. <laughs> you don't need permission. And then uh, we show up for the wedding, and the minister says, I thought this was a BSAP wedding. <laughs> you guys and catch he, the. And I said, well, you know, like, What do you mean? He says, What's that shape you're wearing on your uniform? <laughs> one of the guys didn't change. No, it's always one Johnson. Party. Johnson left his buddy. Johnson, if you're listening to this, if you're still around, man, it's always one party pooper. Are you still doing anything? Yeah. Oh, are we? Oh, okay. Yeah, we are. Well, that's fine. It's all cool. You got to see them. This is this is the collection. That's so ZRP and so. We'll keep this in the and podcast. The we're we're dogs, looking at them live, yeah. The collar dogs are different from the... Yeah. They got the snake on them. So, uh, yeah, you guys swapped them out. and We uh, swapped them out, yeah. And they look good for the wedding. So it would have been the last yeah. BSAP wedding at the chapel. Ever. Be yeah. Ever. Ever. Not because just at the chapel. It was, the BSAP didn't exist anymore. Yep. Yeah. There you go. So... Uh, that was that was your time in Rhodesia. Basically, you, you bugged out. It was, writing was on the wall. You guys were clearly, especially you as a foreigner, I can only imagine that. Oh, in in the middle of all of this, yeah, okay. I I ended up on the SWAT team, right, at, at Salisbury Central, right. Uh, but I had a commitment of 192 days a year in yeah. un uniform, but for. The A Reserve members still had a district commitment mm -hmm. in that we had to go and do uh, six weeks at a rural police station as part of our our duties in town in that. So I ended up going to Inyanga, mm -hmm. Nyanyadzi and Zaka rural police stations for uh, six-week tours. Right. And, uh, and that's, that's where, that was the areas that the BSAP went out in a Land Rover where the Army would only go in company strength. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Driving around a Land Rover with yeah. no doors. <laughs> yep. And with your uh, with your big bright peak cap on, I'm sure. Yeah, I have my peak cap on. Yeah, and that, so, yeah, that's. It was those tours where I got, I got to get ambushed. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It was my. Turn. I I hear that. I hear that's a common, um, 
it's a common <coughs> theme through a lot of people. Forty-five percent of Rhodesia. the of the government mm -hmm. or Rhodesian force casualties yep. during the Bush War were BSAP. Yeah, I think the highest proportion of any any unit formation. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, it just because you guys were going in first. Any like report of something something fishy about well, you yeah. guys were going in first. Right with, with B cars or land, all the land all the landmine in, incidents, mm -hmm. the uh, BSCP would be there first. Yeah, and a, a lot of a lot of the landmines uh, were basically a setup to get us to respond so mm -hmm. that you could ambush us on the way there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and I again, yeah, I it's it's yeah. really crazy. It, it's stupid, you know. Do never drive down a road that the only way back is the same road. Mm. Roger that. <laughs> Rules for life. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. sense. Okay, first rule of life. Yeah. Yeah. Other one is never walk on a trail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Never stick your head back up where you put it down. Rules for life. <laughs> Literally, life. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you, uh, you do take a few goodies out of, you eventually you do leave Rhodesia. You, you, uh, did you spend, you spent a little bit of time in South Africa no, again, or no, you went straight no, back to Canada? Straight back to Canada. Um, With, and no job prospect, but it didn't take me long to find one because you're, I, you're still I, a high I had demand a trade here. that I yeah. could get a job anywhere yeah. in the English speaking world. So. And, uh, given how you have a at this stage, you're what, what? How old were you when you got out of Ruby? So you're there when you're in your mid twenties, and then you you came out. You would have been in your thirties. Okay, I was born in forty six. I left yeah. in eighty one. I was close to forty. Wow, you're you're. Um, yeah, no, maybe not. Maybe thirty five. Thirty five mid thirties. Okay. Yeah. See, you left like a you you showed up like. Relatively young and left a married older older guy with uh, with a relatively good trade, but regardless of that, and just like having a little bit, definitely like a little more maturity, um, having gone through how many years? Nine years total in yeah. uh, in Rhodesia and and through the Bush War, and also working in like a professional context and stuff. How, and again, we we we'll have to revisit this, um, but it's. You mentioned you, during the war, you had so many guys around you that, whether they were desert rats, or they were Malaya vets, or they were guys that had their own call-ups that they had to go to, you had, you had a, like a support network of dudes, of, of battle buddies, or whatever you call them, fire team partners, right? Just guys you could talk to, and and, uh, yeah. and that support network. And now you've, you've come back to Canada, where it was one of the countries that didn't do a whole lot when the tourists died at uh, at Vic Falls, which obviously impacted you and you uh, you weren't. Well, let's just put it this way: the uh, the Canadian government was not exactly friendly to the Rhodesian cause, as most of the Western world was not. Uh, the the adjustment must have been like difficult, to say the least. Like just going back home to. Were able to keep in touch with people and um, like no, no. Uh, 
not until the internet came along. Right. And, and I've got to reconnect with a lot of right, which which is good. Yeah. But yeah. During during that during that like yeah, the eighties and the nineties just. Yeah. yeah. And it it was a hate on for South Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was no point in trying to tell anybody there was a difference yeah. between Rhodesia and South Africa. So, right. Yeah. And. And like you, um, if you had mentioned that you had served, you'd probably be told like you were some sort of mercenary or some sort of, you know, Congo Mueller or Mad Mike, right? I want to be Mad Mike whore or something when, when in reality you volunteered and you were given a standard, mm-hmm. you know, Rhodesia Regiment pay as a rifleman and then BSAP pay in Rhodesian dollars, not... <laughs> <laughs> which, which uh, I'm sure did a lot of good well, after the collapse. Like, uh, so, soldier. Of I can't even. I I'm not even sure what the pay was for national service. It was, yeah. certainly wasn't it the was, same pay as a regular in the RLI. Yeah, or a regular in the BSAP. Uh, yeah, I mean. That, well, it, it didn't matter to me, but because, yeah, because uh, because of the call out, yeah, uh, my employer had to make up the difference. So, I, I my paycheck never stayed. I got I got I got paid as a journeyman printer. Yeah, the whole time I was in Rodeo. Yeah, you weren't being paid as a as a soldier fortune or anything, which is um, unfortunately like you because of well the unfortunately a lot of the the. There was an opportunity to make yeah. bounty. Right. Because there was a reward put on information leading to the arrest right. or whatever of a confirmed terrorist. And depending on what rank they had, uh, right, right. You know, in a landmine was worth so much or, or whatever. So. If I wanted to, I could go out on the weekends and right. look for landmines and hand them in and get mm-hmm. and, and money. But yeah, there, <laughs> there are people like that. But I, I've I've seen a lot of people that uh, did not do any time in the BSAP or the army, and you know, the, unfortunately, a lot of these guys got covered by like Soldier Fortune magazine, and they yeah. were just security guards basically that went out on the weekend. Oh, and, uh, bright know, lights. Their, their, yeah. Their bright I light. mean yeah. Th- that there there was an opportunity to do uh uh farm security. Yeah, farm security, right? Yeah. And that because uh yeah, they were sitting ducks and that so they were yeah. hiring uh private uh, they weren't hiring uh, the farmer wasn't hiring an an individual. There was actually like a company would have been like a company that yeah. was was offering yeah services. so not exactly soldier of fortune no um, no that's a it's a bit of a myth that's been yeah. it wasn't co- it wasn't the congo in no. the 60s no. it's a very different no this is conflict. not five commando yeah no and certainly like the war that you fought was very it was very unique because again you were working the entire like working a civilian job different civilian jobs in concurrence with like the history of the time mm-hmm. And uh, you were also well. Uh, I, I did it. I did a uh, like I said. I had to do these call-ups to police 
uh, rural police stations yeah. uh, as part of my commitment and do a six-week tour <coughs> um, in Yanga. I went to Yanga yeah. for six weeks, and the guy on the tour with me was, was uh, he had signals experience, so he was doing uh, radio work uh, on the call-up. Yeah. He was the doctor in charge of all the leper colonies in Rhodesia. Wow. That's, like that's the beauty of a, a conscripted army. You get a little bit of everything. Everybody. Yeah. Citizen yeah. soldiers, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Citizen soldiers. Citizen and soldiers. I, you're in the, there I am in the trench with a, with a medical doctor who specializes in Mm-hmm. in leprosy. Yep. I'm not in the trench with some Yankee Yahoo <laughs> that signed up yeah. because he wants to collect ears. Yep. Okay. Yep. It's <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that got me. Roger that. Roger that. It's, <laughs> it's, it's ordinary people yeah. in extraordinary times asked to do Extraordinary things. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, and you, you learn how to be adaptable, and that's I think that's just the key, biggest takeaway. Whenever I talk to you, is because you you kept adapting. You when you did come back to K, eventually you got involved with uh, with tech as we know it, right? You're working with uh, telecoms companies, and it, you played with early MacBooks and stuff. Um, yeah, that's the funny thing. I've yeah. been out of the trade for what I thought ten years. Yeah. In darkest Africa. Yeah. <laughs> still printing newspapers with lead type. Yeah. And that, and I, I come back and I, I've got to play catch up. I must be be so far behind. <laughs> yeah. In that, so I ran out and bought a Commodore computer and. In the early 80s, like way ahead of everybody else. Well, yeah, but it wasn't until a year later that I found out, oh, I was a pioneer yep. in computers. I thought I was playing catch-up. I thought yep. everybody was knew about this stuff. But Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah no one did in the early 80s. <laughs> so, yeah, you and uh, you've been you've been playing with computers ever since. And then yeah. the, the nice thing, I guess, is uh, you have been able to... Well, obviously, we were able to connect over the Internet, which is cool. Because, um, I, again, like... When I when I personally started looking into this history, it was a lot of like Soldier Fortune magazine, like old '80s Soldier Fortune magazines, and they were not. No offense to like Robert Brown and and those guys, and I know you. Again, we got to have another podcast, man. I know you hang out with a crippled eagle sometimes, and you hung out at the bar, <laughs> which uh, you weren't a big fan of because you're certain they're CIA, but. <laughs> um, uh, crippled eagles, yeah. Yeah, but uh, we. Uh, you gotta have another podcast about that, but yeah, um, yeah, that was uh, that was an interesting place. In oh yeah, Africa. yeah, we gotta we gotta see. So sorry, you guys can't see this if you're listening to the podcast, but this is the you gotta see that. That is yeah. the, an original sticker. Yeah, <laughs> we'll have to like so post we it. Moves. We'll have to post it with the uh, picture of it with a podcast. I have a picture of it, but that's an original Triple Eagle yeah. sticker. I've seen Amazing. it. Amazing. Yeah. yeah, I used to hang yeah. out there, but my my. Basically, my job to hang out there was I was to fight, was to report who had loose lips. Yeah, because that place was designed 
totally the same ships. Get to loosen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, like I said, it's just that it was. Uh, it's yeah. You get. You definitely gave me a lot of perspective on this conflict and and just how complex it was. So, uh, yeah. Again, um, we appreciate you doing this with us. I think we'll probably we're we're coming up we'll probably come up on almost three hours for this podcast and uh, yeah Bindu do you have anything to add? Um, not really except Robin Moore. Oh, there we go. Oh, yeah, yeah. We got to do video podcasts one day, Bindu. Yeah, what? Yeah. Right, show your podcast the cover. Yeah, yeah, we could show the the Buyers Club who's listening live. Yeah. 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 You see the two white policemen sitting in the in the middle of the crowd on the front cover. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, is that uh, is that you? No, no, that's not you. That can't be you. Oh, okay. That's my fire partner in. Oh, there we go. In SWAT, right there. That's Billy Eagleton. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So there, there we go. Um, yeah, that's Billy. That's sweet. We gotta do a video podcast one day. Robert or just Moore. like a video. We gotta do a proper video. Anyways, um, like again, we appreciate it. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, Larry, thank you so much for sitting down with down with us and talking to us about all this. You have an inc- absolutely incredible life story, and I mean, I think you offer a very unique perspective on the Rhodesian Bush War, being a a Canadian who sort of found himself there and well, yeah, sort of yeah, is a BSAP sort of like, veteran. It's sort of like having a life, but your other life is your. For some silly reason, you decided to join, uh, decided to become a volunteer fireman. Mm-hmm. And you've got this parallel thing going. Yeah. Yeah. And you're doing it, you're doing that because somebody has to do it. Mm-hmm. And it needs to be done. And everybody pitches in. When your neighbor's house catches fire, yeah, you don't lock your door and say, yeah, it sucks to be you, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's yeah. Simple as that. Roger that. Well, with that, grew up uh, grew up in a coal mining town. That uh, St. John's ambulance was what everybody did. Yep. And the heroes of that town were the dragermen. You know what dragermen are? No. Mine rescue. Oh. Mine rescue, in a coal mine. That is not something you want to be doing, but you do it. Just, so with that, we'll um, we'll wrap up here, and we'll have to we'll have to revisit some stuff again. Yeah, we'll have to revisit, <laughs> grab another Chibouli. Yeah, yeah, another yeah, chibouli. Totally. yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll definitely have to do it. Thanks again, man. It's a, a, it's oh, greatly appreciated, and yeah. uh, we'll um, we'll conclude the podcast, I guess, uh, with a reading um, after the fact of uh, of Larry's poem, and and Bindu and I will have some brief thoughts afterwards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You come to me reporters, and ask what war's about. You ask for tales of heroes, you believe in them, no doubt. You ask about guerrillas, want details of their deeds, and call them little brothers in the stories that one reads. Now I shall keep this simple, so attend while I explain. For once I've done and finished, I'll not say it all again. That maiming's bad and killing's worse and lots of both I've known. So why not write what follows in the papers that you own? I'll not tell you of the heroes or the brave deeds that were. I'll not speak out on a victory, of which I am not sure. 
I'll tell you, though, of suffering, starvation, and disease. I'll tell you of an old, old man shot cruelly through both knees. I'll tell you of an ambush upon a harmless bus, and finding two days later the blood and bones and pus still smeared inside the wreckage where some had slowly died because no one went to rescue them. No one had even tried. I'll speak now of a chief I knew whose court I oft saw sit, gunned down because he spoke for peace, his grave a rubbish pit, or of another chief tied up and shot most carefully through head and neck and chest and face than heart to make sure he was dead. Come see this empty clinic. I really think you should. It used to be so busy, doing only good, until gorillas shut it down without explaining why and threw away the medicines that help when children cry. Walk now across this empty land. Come with me if you dare. I'll take you to a gully with sides both steep and bare, where skulls and bones lie scattered, remains of many men, who died untimely, wastefully. Let that come from your pen. Go tell the tale of wheelchairs, the blinded and bereaved, set down of rape and robbery, of stories disbelieved, of beatings, torture, drunkenness, of murder and much worse, of crops cut down and cows cut up and the farmer's anguished curse. Write of black granite red with blood, of mud and open wounds, of ears noise blasted, eyes flash seared, and minds grimly attuned, to try to function normally despite the war around, as they shelter in their bunker some few feet underground. And take good note of empty schools where students used to be, Headmaster murdered, students gone, the terrors have set them free. Or see that family walking there, where walking is no fun. They walk because the landmines are where the buses used to run. So border up your page in black when you print this tale from me. For war is suffering, pain and death, not some fancy comedy. Write it honest, write it strong when you read up on this war. And note the heroes, set the dead, and keep an honest score. Behind the medals on our breasts are vivid memories of friend and foe and some unknown now buried neath the trees that stood and grew and took no part in what we humans did for war is like Pandora's box. Pray God can close the lid. Larry Tierney Jenkins, BSAP, 1979. That was a poem written during the Rhodesian Bush War by Mr. Larry Jenkins, a very good friend, entitled, Let This Come From Your Pen. As we probably mentioned there in the podcast, we were asked to actually read this poem after the fact. Uh, it, it meant a heck of a lot to him that we did, so we're, we're honored to do it on his behalf. Um, as After all these years, he's not able to read the poem again which, I mean, it tells you a heck of a lot about what you need to know about a lot of these young men and what they experienced during the Rhodesian Bush War. It's a hell of an interview we did with them. Very much so. Yeah, and Mr. Larry Jenkins has now left the building. Hell of an interesting interview. So, normally I go first, but Bindi, you got any takeaways? Uh, Just it's... It's an incredible life story, and I mean, I think, I think Larry is, I think the embodiment of his generation who sort of grew up in the the shadow of the the Second World War, and then yeah. sort of found themselves, some of them fighting their own conflicts in this 
sort of brave new world that sort of was created after 1945. And it's a hell of an adventure that he lived. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Not even all that common among his time. Like No, that, that, that was my point. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people in that generation probably sought adventure and maybe not so much today. We seem to have explored and discovered and figured out everything. Well, I mean, yeah. maybe that's just us. Maybe that's just our generation of millennials, late millennials that all went to college and some joined the military and whatnot. But it's a different world now. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll leave it at that. I, I think there's still some adventure out there to be found. But uh, yeah. we know someone right now who's living out an adventure of his own who will go unmentioned. Yeah. So we uh, we, we hope he's doing well if he's listening to this. <laughs> Uh, homie's having a little African adventure right now of his own, but we hope he's doing well. There is still adventure out there, I think, uh, and man, it, it 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 profoundly affects you, I guess, when you go through an experience like that. So, anyways, absolutely fantastic interview. Many thanks again to Larry Jenkins for being okay with the interview. Um, thank you again to our subscribe star fans, and for you, our dear listeners, we do it all for you. This podcast will always remain free, but you can always support us with all the miscellaneous things associated with audio, visual production, and podcast production, and website hosting, and all that. Over on our website, you can find our subscribe star, menamongmenstories.com. Links to a donation page where you can support us as little as a dollar, as much as a hundred. We'll take it all. And we'll love you all the way. Thanks for uh, sticking uh, with us. This whole podcast, guys, we know this is a lot longer than most of them, but we hope you enjoyed it nonetheless. Roger that. And and just a shameless self-plug for me, if you happen to like military history, perhaps you like military gear and military surplus apparel, and if you like Rhodesian history particularly, you might like Rhodesian <laughs> breaststroke and other gear. You're laughing over there, Bindu, but I got to make a living, and I make my living through a website called www.fireforceadventures.com where you can find out all the cool things that I sell and support me on there. Very smooth, very smooth. Also, make sure to check out our good friends at Commando Blog. They run a fantastic website, and you might be listening to this podcast on their website. Commandoblog.com. They have all kinds of fantastic articles on all things firearms, lifestyle, tactical stuff. Outdoor lifestyle, outdoor especially. lifestyle, and they do hook us up with a little bit of hosting on their website as well. So shout out to them. Do check them out if you're not already there. And again, menamongmenstories.com, your baby. Mm-hmm. Yes, check out uh, menamongmenstories.com, our website, where you can... Listen to our past episodes if you haven't already. We're up to episode 9 right now. Is this episode 9? No, this is episode 7. Okay, sorry. We're up to episode 7. Actually, yes, you're right. Actually, wait. This is episode 9. You know what? I'm going to cut that entire part off. You should keep this in. (laughs) shows, there's so many podcasts actually on the website. Yes, we're doing so many, we're starting to forget them. (laughs) Which order they're in. There's many hours of content on there, and if you do enjoy it, we're just asking for like a buck a month, and that would go a long way in terms of supporting us and our endeavors and getting better mics and better guests and all that good stuff. There's a lot more stuff we have planned for this podcast, including, as I mentioned, there's going to be there's audio visual, so there's going to be a video component moving forward in the future. We're going to be on YouTube. 
Lots of stuff is in the works, just ironing out the kinks behind the scenes. So, again, thank you so much for listening. Special thanks as well to our... Special thanks again to our Facebook Fire Force Ventures Buyers Club members who are listening live. If you want to listen live to these podcasts as they were recorded, you can always check out, again, my website, another shameless self-plug, fireforceventures.com, over at the Buyers Club. 25 bucks gets you a lifetime membership, 5% discount on my website, and live access to every single podcast we record, including the interviews, which is pretty cool in my opinion. Very much. Yeah, listening to it live, yep. chirping us live as we're doing yes. this yeah, no, yeah. Which is always fun. Some of you are... Rude to Bastards. <laughs> nice to me. They seem to hate you. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, thank you so much for listening. Shout out to those guys again in the Buyers Club, to our subscribers, to our homies, and to all those, the thin red line, right? I don't mean just like firefighters. I mean like the thin red line, you know? Military, law enforcement. That was kind of a lame thanks, but many thanks to you guys that are holding the line out there. So pull up. Grab a chibouli and have a wonderful day, guys.